all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and they you've got to get them off welfare. Hello and welcome to Cars and Comrades podcast, your favorite socialist car podcast because you don't have any other options. I'm Zach. I'm here with the whole crew today. We got Brandon, Connor, and Brian. How you guys doing? Hey, how's it going? Doing I'm all right. Good, good. We're going to talk a little bit about Subarus today. Um, we're a little behind the curve on this one, but this is in a lot of ways, a response to Donut Media's, let's say... <laughs> Blowing up every engine they can find. Adventures? Adventures with Subarus. And, uh, you know, we'll go over, you know, what I think they did wrong. And, uh, you know, we'll try to look at what they might have done right, which is uh, going to be a short list. Nothing. But yeah, <laughs> we'll go over it all. Um, and, but first, I think Bryant... And I have a little... Uh, yeah, Bryant... I have a little tidbit of history about Subaru, but, uh, you know, we'll get to that. I, I Are we doing uh, Project Car updates this time around? Oh, yeah. Let's, uh, yeah. let's do that, Yeah, I think. Uh, who we got going first this time? I'll yeah. do that. Okay. I've kind of, like, lost track. So I will say about, yeah, I guess a week ago, week and some change, we had a really nice day here, and my Ford had started making a clanking noise, and I've realized that the frame had broken again. Is this uh, like the third time or not even dude, it's a fourth or fifth. <laughs> Is it in different spots every time at least? Almost. But this okay. time, actually this time it it was still was, but like it, I'm sorry, it was in an old spot, but it wasn't the old weld that broke. It kind of ripped the portion of the frame free. It's not as dramatic good. as that sounded. It's just it just happened. It was fine, whatever. MBD. But like I, I think I had fixed it the last time we we talked but i decided that i was going to like reinforce it just whenever i got around to it so i got up under the van and i took a piece of like three sixteenths plate and just welded the spot that it was always breaking at i decided to weld the just this plate in so that like if it broke it really was going to take some fucking work for it to break because what keeps breaking weirdly is not under a lot of load it's just that i think that the metal on that portion of the frame has gotten a little bit thin over the years I'm an idiot, and uh, oh, as, as an interesting side note, I had just gotten a brand new phone. I didn't have a cell phone for a week, and I just got a new one. And so I get to my shop, and I climb underneath my van, and I realize that my TIG is out of gas. So I grab the MIG welder that a friend of mine has there that he never cares if I use. And the sun is going down, and I'm like, well, this is going to be fucking annoying because I'm not a great MIG welder. I'm much better with TIG. And the sun's going down, so it's dark. So I get my cell phone out, which I've had for, at this point, almost two days. And I use that as a flashlight. And I, you know, start trying to get the, the MIG dialed in. Because I'm in the dark with a welder I'm not super acclimated to and all this shit, I probably laid the single worst weld that I have done <laughs> since I learned how to weld. So bad that I, in fact find out eventually I had pretty much missed the seam of the three sixteenths plate to the frame <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> because I'm in the dark. 
But what I did do was get enough welding spatter on my two-day-old cell phone to burn two holes in the screen. Oh. So true to form, okay. I have yet... I have had one phone in the last 10 years that didn't break within the first week. It still works. It just, you know, has holes in the screen. Um, did you get the protection plan? Dude, I bought a refurbished phone for 200 uh, bucks. Okay. Man, that's a bummer. You know, we were just talking before we started recording about the the philosophy of, you know, buy it twice and fuck it up once or something like that. <laughs> I forget exactly the terminology, but I, I, f- I feel like this this fits with that uh, philosophy. The last time I got a new phone, I, I sat it on the doghouse in my van without a case because the case was supposed to show up in the mail the next day. And it was literally the first day I owned it and I shattered the screen because it slid Ugh. off of my doghouse when I went through a turn. Yeah. Uh, the, oh. the doghouse being the inside engine cover for a van because I recently realized that no one has any idea what I'm talking about when I say that. Um, <laughs> oh, yep, yep. Anyway, yeah, I like it, it was a rough day. And within two days, the like the radius arm, uh, the, the, the mount for that was clanking on the frame again because I almost completely missed the seam. We had really good weather this past week and I got new, I got gas for the TIG. And I, I fixed it. Like, it's doing great now. It's, it's running fine, and all that's welded back up. There's still some ugly weld that I want to grind off and re-weld, but it's, like, structurally sound right now. But that's that's just me mostly, like, leading in with the funny part, because I managed to burn holes in the screen of my phone through my own idiocy. The Chevy runs! Yay! Woo. Hey, that's great news. I yeah. had stabbed the distributor incorrectly, and it was off a, a full gear. Like, or, I'm sorry, a full tooth. The reason it would fire up very easily but not run for shit is because at idle, I was probably running about 30 degrees of advance. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, okay. totally normal. Yeah, that's the right amount, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my timing was pretty spicy. Um, <laughs> yeah. You were spicy enough to like not be able to work rather than causing a more significant issue, I think. A little bit. If it was a little less advanced, you might have been able to uh, actually have a real problem like detonation or something. Basically, I realized that, that there is like a quick and dirty way to pull the distributor and reinstall it so that everything lines up fine and you don't have to like go through the full proper installation. I didn't realize that I missed one of those steps. Uh, yeah. And basically because like the gears on the distributor are like, uh, like a helical cut gear, you can stab it so that it when it first meshes with the cam gear, it's point it's in the right position. It looks like it's in the right position, but then as it seats down, it's rotating. Gotcha. Yep. And so so that's prob that's where my mistake was. I got it restabbed, still caused me a bunch of problems because I still had like the incorrect amount of advance. Even once I had it on the right gear, I was running like twenty degrees of advance. And it it has fought me for a couple of days and I'm still not quite comfortable driving it. But I fucked with the carburetor today in a way that I, I think should have the carb tuned pretty good. I currently have it at eight degrees of advance, which is not quite enough for this motor. This motor really likes eleven or twelve degrees. And the yeah. biggest problem that I'm encountering is trying to figure out how to because to check my timing, I have to be under the hood. But to adjust my timing, I have to be inside the van. <laughs> <laughs> so all of like most of my friends are idiots, and I do not trust them to help me fuck with my timing. Yeah. So I'm just like, you really don't you underestimate how hard it is to rotate something like that's you know maybe five or six inches in diameter to rotate it one or two degrees because any movement oh, yeah. at all is like five degrees. <laughs> Yeah, I feel uh, like there should be a way. 
I don't know if you wanted to, you could maybe rig up some thing with like a tooth pulley and belt or like chain and sprocket or something like that, that you could adjust it from under the hood. I don't know. I feel like people have been doing it for like 70 years without that. So it's probably <laughs> just a matter of me being really careful about my timing, but I fucked my timing all up today before we recorded. And I had to like, I was just fucking with it. And I called my best friend who was always like my the guy that I call to vent about me fucking up to. And uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't run, it wouldn't start, because, like, I slipped and just fucked my timing up so badly, I couldn't even tell. I couldn't get it to run long enough to even put a gun to it and see where I was at. And then as soon as I got off the phone with him, I just said, fuck it, and I was like, all right, this is where I feel like it should be, and I tightened the distributor down, and I nailed it back at 8 degrees. Nice. Still not perfect, because... Uh, it'll barely idle right now because it re- like eight is from the factory. Good. My Chevy, do- it has a pretty good cam in it. I am making one inch of vacuum at idle, which in terms of tuning a carbureted engine is like fucking nothing. Is that good? It's no, like it's not good or bad. Just no vacuum makes a lot of things harder to fuck with. That's probably why when you hit the throttle off of idle, it bogs down before it accelerates. Uh. And I really don't know the reason, but I know the reasons that that normally happens. But if I'm making that little vacuum at idle, then it explains why it does that. I I have to look up how to remedy that and how to tweak it, but it it is a thing because race motors don't make a lot of vacuum down. Yeah, big big giant cam can can definitely uh, reduce that vacuum. Honestly, I'm I'm coming to realize that I've probably underestimated the cam that's in that motor for a long time. Like, I never thought that it was a mild cam. It sounds lopey and chunky as hell. Like, you know, it, it, it's yeah. got that, it's got that, like, pig sort of, like, cop at a donut shop noise to it. <laughs> I, I think I've underestimated the cam, and I'm going to have to, like, tweak the carburetor in a more uh, sophisticated way than just adjusting, like, the air-fuel mixture and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. I think as soon as I can put, be very careful and put two or three more degrees of timing into the distributor, I will throw the doghouse back on and probably be able to drive the van. Sweet. Woo. Yeah, it's, uh, nice. it's, it's running. I drove it through the parking lot today. It was obviously having some issues but like i said it really likes the extra timing and i think it is because it has such a lopey and you know spicy cam in it which really like it also makes me want to get out there and open it up because yeah true to form for a cam like that i have no bottom end power but that thing i've gotten it close to 100 miles an hour before and you could tell that like the engine was really just starting to pick up (laughs) and i don't know who put this cam in this van thinking that they were about to like go around the track at like a buck 25 but (laughs) this is not a good street cam (laughs) yeah it would be great for highway poles do like a 60 roll and just stop people yeah honestly like that's i've got a turbo 350 in it and i haven't really worked it over yet so like i I think that i should probably put a shift kit in that or something if you hit the throttle so that in second gear it just stays wide open it'll shift at around 4500 rpms and that's when you can tell that motor doesn't even want to start making power until about 3500 oh yeah yeah, I know that that's not crazy, but I'm used to torqueier motors where like at 2200 RPMs, you're just spinning the fucking tires. And this is not that I can't even do burnouts in this van. But man, you get it rolling. Yeah, at 60 miles an hour, it wakes right the fuck up. Yeah, that would be pretty sick to see a van just stomp on some people on some highway poles, just 60 roll and just walk somebody in like a Corvette or something. Yeah, but that's the thing, man. It's it's still a 327 that's like 50 years old. Like it's never yeah, going to be like a monster. Yeah. Fair. It's it's just going to be a, an engine that like that's where all the power comes in. 
You could stomp someone in a Nissan Altima. Dude, I think I want to get an Altima. Also cool. I feel like I have Altima energy. <laughs> oh boy. That's a very particular kind of energy. You think you have Altima energy? I want to do crime. <laughs> do you have a bad credit score? <laughs> um, dude. Does Brandon have a credit score? I'm not even sure. F- yeah. My credit score is like F minus. <laughs> I, I think you do have ultimate energy then. <laughs> the, the fact that a credit score is out of like a number and you just said F minus makes me think that, yeah, it's probably not great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say that I, I use one of the uh, cheaper, more actually now it's kind of gone mainstream. I use T-Mobile, but like I got onto T-Mobile when that was still like the place that only had storefronts and kind of like bad neighborhoods and shit. Yeah. And I was utterly shocked the first time that that I didn't have to like that they ran a credit check and didn't make me put a significant down payment down. But all of the utility companies make me put down deposits, and Home Depot won't give me a credit card, <laughs> and my utilities get shut off about once a year. Because I don't pay any of my bills. Does that yep, is that all is that ultimate yeah. energy? That is ultimate energy. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimate energy is more like a general disregard for the lives and well being of anyone else <laughs> on the road with you. <laughs> That's ultimate energy to me, because like every Ultima I see is just whipping through traffic so close to other drivers. Are you arguing that I do or don't have ultimate energy? I'm just putting it out there what ultimate energy is to me. It's up to you yeah, to tell decides. us if you have ultimate energy. I I was I was talking to one of our listeners online and he I said something about thinking about getting an ultimate and he was like, that makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe you do have ultimate energy. <laughs> Uh, well, for the time being, I'm about to have uh, more of my vehicles running, so I'll get a big block and load it up into the car, and we'll see about an Altima after that. Right. The Altima was my way of thinking, like, okay, I'm so fucking fed up with my old shit heat vehicles never running. What can I get that would be modern, but still say, stay the fuck away from me, I'm a wreck. <laughs> <laughs> well, if that's what you're going for, Altima is definitely the way to go. I want to take it as far as I can. I want to be the ultimate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I know a guy who got an Ultima because he had a um, Fiat 500, a BART that shit the bed. And he's like, I just need a car that runs. He uh, decided to be a fucking weirdo about it and got like chrome hubcaps from a dually pickup or whatever that poke out three or four inches on a side. And that was nice. just his little his little weirdness. Uh, he's like, I'm going to have a vanilla car, but I'm going to be weird about it. So I, I could see you doing something like that. Yeah, I would be like, oh, look at these hubcaps. I found them on another Altima in a parking lot while the driver was inside. <laughs> <laughs> it's too risky for me. I'm too pro-crime to get an Altima because I will end up in jail. <laughs> like yeah, How I have stayed out of jail is, is anyone's guess. But I think if I got an Altima, that might be the tipping point. Yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah, I was talking about car updates. Yeah, uh, the van runs but isn't drivable yet, and my Ford is less fucked up than it was. And uh, honestly, it's, it's kind of just been a productive a couple of weeks. The one thing I will say is after I burned the holes in the screen of my phone, I finally broke down and bought something that I've been putting off but wanting. Yeah. I bought a 450 lumen rechargeable Milwaukee headlamp. Mm. Best purchase I've ever made. 
Nice. How much? Uh, uh, how much one of those run? That sounds like something I'd be interested in. Well, that's an interesting question. I didn't steal it. Uh, okay, <laughs> I was gonna ask, but thank you for clarifying. Well, as soon as I said that's an interesting question, I was like, well, I did just advocate crime for three minutes. <laughs> So maybe I should clarify, I did not steal this. No, I went to Home Depot to buy it because a friend of mine had one. And just the fact that it's rechargeable was a selling point on its own because I always forget to turn them off. Mm -hmm. It was on the shelf. It was listed as like 40 something dollars. So I went to go buy it and it rang up as 70. And here's the thing. My friend who told me about them told me they were $70. So I was prepared. But when I saw the sign that said 40, so I was Mm -hmm. at self-checkout and I canceled the transaction and went back to make sure I had grabbed the right thing. I had... So I took a picture of the what the one I was buying next to the price, went back to self-checkout, rang it up. It came up as $70 again, and I grabbed the cashier, who I had just heard say that he passed the apprenticeship test for whatever union he was trying to get into. Nice. And I'm at Home Depot, so I know this motherfucker couldn't give less of a shit. <laughs> and uh, so I'm like, hey, man, this is ringing up for almost twice what the sticker says it should. And he looks at me and, and just says, man, I, I don't know what to tell you, bro. I, I, I can't help you. And just walks over and like enters his like fucking passcode in it and rings it up for 40 bucks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. I don't know what you think I can't help you means, but I like it. <laughs> was he being washed or something? Or I don't know, man. Like I, I think he was just sort of like, I don't care, but I, I, I'm going to help you out. I, I don't give a fuck about you, but here you go. Yeah. That's <laughs> you nice. you you look like you could be a problem if I don't help you. <laughs> he went to say, I don't care. I'll help you out. But he was just didn't care enough to put that sentence together. So he's just like, I can't help you. Fuck it. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, his, his exact words, I believe, were, I don't know what to tell you, bro. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care what you tell me. You just knocked 30 bucks off of this thing, so I'm good. Hell yeah. So that being said, I don't know if they cost 40 or $70. The yeah. internet tells me 70 so... There's a Yeesh. 650 lumen one that I know is 70 but I bought the lower one specifically because, according to the shelf, it was $30 cheaper. Yes. Either way, yeah. they fucking rule. Like, not to like be a brand whore for fucking Milwaukee or anything, but uh, it has it comes with like a headlamp deal. But the actual lamp itself pulls out of the housing and is magnetic. Oh, oh that's nifty. That so sometimes cool. I'll just have it on my fucking head and I'll be under my van and I can't quite see, so I just rip it out, keep the headband on, and I'll like stick it to the fucking frame so that it shines right where I'm fucking welding. Most beautiful fucking that's like. Dope. As far as like things that you don't need but are absolutely wonderful to have, this is a ten out of ten. Yeah, it's a good one. It's even like a good one. Like not to oversell it, but it even has like multiple bevels so that the magnet sticks and you can point it at different angles. Holy, Holy shit! shit. Okay, now I think I have to go get one. <laughs> it's a very simple design, but it is mwah, chef's kiss, man. <laughs> Yo, okay. I first of all, I am a brand whore for Milwaukee. No shame. I fucking yeah, love I'm on Milwaukee. Milwaukee train a little bit. They're good. I all my shit's Milwaukee. Like I'm a carpenter. Everything I own is Milwaukee and used for work. Also, I just see most of my shit's Milwaukee, but my, my all my coworkers use uh, Dewalt. So I've almost thought about swapping just so I can actually have batteries if I forget mine. But yeah, I just. I just added the 600 lumen <laughs> one to my Home Depot cart, and it came with a free second USB rechargeable battery. So 70 bucks for the 600 lumen version and another battery. Buying it, buying it right now. Well, I don't even know how that works because the battery does. I didn't think it was removable. 
It's just got a, like a USB cable that plugs into it. But yeah, dude, I love it. Uh, it's maybe maybe the 600 lumen version has a rechargeable or like a removable battery. It kind of looks the, like it. Oh wait, no, no. I'm sorry. I have the 450. So yeah, th that one might. I don't know. But dude, it it fucking rules. That one is a different shape. So I don't know if it comes out of the housing and all of that stuff. Yeah, we might even want to edit this out because this is just like five <laughs> five minutes of headlamp talk. But oh my god, it is so beautiful! Like I just cannot say enough good. I don't know. I feel like I feel like there's people who would appreciate knowing that that exists and might be yeah. interested in it. We'll just yeah. change the name of the podcast. It's he uh, headlamps and comrades now. Yeah, headlamps uh, and homies. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only thing I could say is on the brightest setting, it only lasts for about two hours. Yeah, but on on depending so on the setting, it lasts between two and ten hours. So I usually keep it on the mid range. When I'm doing like a drywall mud, you can see every fuck up you make. It's oh, so nice. easy to it's so easy to sand, or if you're if you're mudding, it's so easy to get every fucking line out of the mud, dude. I, my coworkers are like seriously getting annoyed with how much I talk about my headlamp at this point. <laughs> but, but our electrician that turned me on to it, him and I will just have 10 minute long conversations about how great the headlamps are. That's so funny. Cause I'm pretty sure the electrician I'm working with right now has one of these. Oh, I see it with it all the time. <laughs> Actually, my electrician has three so that one is always charged. Wow. And if, I guess no, if I... you're making electrician money, you're not worried about a fucking $70 headlamp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I've I've gone on for twenty minutes about a headlamp. Uh, let let's let Bryant talk for a minute and see what he's done. Uh, well, I, actually, I haven't done a whole lot. Mostly, what I was working on lately was putting attic in my insulation. Or excuse me, mostly what I was working on lately was putting insulation in my attic. And uh, Zach helped me out a good bit with that. Tried to. Yeah, it, it was pretty good to see like how much two Subaru hatchbacks can fit, as far as like <laughs> bundles of insulation and all that shit. But it was a huge pain in the ass, and I don't want to go in my attic ever again, but I probably will have to eventually to finalize some stuff. As far as uh, car stuff, I did get the notice in the mail that I got a emissions test my uh, MR2. So uh, it's a good thing that I hadn't taken the suspension apart like I was going to. So I got to drive it down there, I don't know, probably next week sometime. And then I'm not sure, I should probably check and see if my... Sabro needs an emissions test this year because uh, I remember last year I had to put the original uh, catalytic converter back on it temporarily and uh, nearly gave me uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. That was fun. Might have to do that again before I can tear apart the suspension on my MR2. But I do want to do that sooner rather than later and put in all the poly bushings and fix the brakes and get new tires on it and all that shit. And then, you know, just drive it all summer, hopefully. Oh, and I got my uh, bicycle trainer set up in my living room now, pointed at the TV, so I can put I put my bike on the roller thing, and I can ride my bike and watch TV at the same time. Oh, nice. So yeah, I'm trying to stay in, in shape, even though it's kind of cold out, and hopefully it'll be a little bit warmer here, and I can go out on the road a little bit more, and then eventually, uh, you know, I've been talking about it for a long time, but I want to do the uh, electric bicycle conversion to one of my bikes, and... <laughs> Um. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. That's about all I, I all I've got going on. Very right, good shit. Nice. Uh, I guess it's, uh, it's good that you only took a couple of minutes since I took twenty. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to balance <laughs> things out. You know. <laughs> uh, I'm also going to try and balance things out by not taking uh too long here. But the way I'm going to do that is by not saying everything I've been working on. <laughs> um, say what you gotta say. No, no, no. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I can balance I, you out, Connor. I, I got no, shit no. to say. Like I got nothing. 
I've been I've been very very productive, and I could talk forever about this. So I'm just gonna hold back a little bit. Sorry, too bad. All right, all right. So anyway, p- part of it is I wasn't on the last recording. Right. Yeah. Right, so I've got a little bit more kind of stored up here. So back a few weeks ago, I mean, the big change was I fixed my headlight finally. I nice. changed the ballast with a junkyard ballast, which super good. Definitely the way to go. It's way cheaper than getting a new one. So junkyard ballast, and I also unfortunately had to change the uh, pl- the bulb too because apparently it seems like moisture got in there on the bulb. And so it was like, both the ballast and the bulb were bad. So, of course, I fixed it. I fixed the ballast, and then when I went to uh, get it working, obviously, that's when I discovered that the bulb was out, too. So, I was like, well, that oh, man, sucks. if I can, real quick. One time, I had a headlight, uh, uh, the bulb crack and start developing moisture. And by the time it burned out, I probably had, like, a full cup or, or cup and a half of liquid <laughs> built up. It was not quite to the halfway point, because that would have, like immediately burned the bulb out obviously but it was so full that when it finally did go like i was able to hold it up to my friends and joke about headlight fluid (laughs) it's like like, oh it must have burned out because i i had less than half a thing of headlight fluid left Uh, probably to fix it i could have just put my milwaukee headlight right there and it would have been brighter than the the 70s headlight would be anyway (laughs) <laughs> yeah so in my case i changed the ballast then i changed the bulb and a second whole thing but the other nice thing was this was the headlight that i don't know if i'd mentioned it before had like a bunch of condensation in it so like i spent good money on these new headlights like way back when i did had the engine rebuilt i also had the new headlights done so they're like really you know they're decent looking headlights and from the start one of them just had moisture in it and the, it just like kept getting worse and worse over time to the point where it was just like the entire lens was just like little drops of water. <laughs> so it was uh, it was kind of an eyesore and it really made it not effective as a headlight. So when it went out, I was like, all right, well, I got to change that, whatever. Wasn't sure I was going to fix the condensation issue, but um, I it, for what I did, um, it was still cold when I was doing it. So I had a space heater in the garage and I just prop the headlight up on there and i kept turning it every you know 20 30 minutes or something while i was working um so because i had to take out the whole you know headlight assembly to do all this um which means front bumper had to come off the whole thing like that um so i just kept rotating it uh different angles and heating it up and it did get all the moisture out and then when i resealed it I added some silicone around one of the seals that looked a little bit funky on the outside. Um, I don't think that's where it w- where the issue was. I think it was just like the cap wasn't on right. But um, anyway, I got it on right proper and it's been several weeks and I do not have the condensation anymore. So so it's cool. It's, it's like actually fixed now. So that's pretty legit. Uh, very happy with that. Nice. Then uh, at the same time, I changed out the um, fender liner inside because one of the things that I've had an issue with is the factory fender liners I have torn through like just from drifting and from having you know aftermarket wheels and shit like I have torn through that that um, liner and that can cause you to have an issue with getting moisture into the headlight ballast I've had to change that ballast like two or three times I did end up putting in a fresh brand new liner in there now so 
I still have the other side I've got to do for that. In terms of like where it's at right now, I'm feeling pretty good about it. So new fender liner, new ballast headlight. It looks good. Um, so I feel like just generally a lot better and I can actually see better, which would be nice to uh, obviously be able. It is nice, I should say, uh, to be able to see right. At the same time, I also changed out my exterior door handle with a, of course, a junkyard door handle. That solved all my problems with the door. All the issues like both the lock issue and the like actual handle not working were both the exterior door handle. Just simple change, took a few minutes, wasn't that bad, and I no longer have to like worry about crawling into the car from the passenger seat, which is a big plus for me. That is um, very nice. That's a yeah. huge quality of life improvement. <laughs> it's, it's a big one. I was like, oh yeah, this is great. I love it. <laughs> yeah, um, that's great. So yeah, that that's all good. And then another little thing I did, hardly worth a mention, but for the longest time, I have never put a shift knob in the car. I've used the stock one, which is just like peeling and gross at this point. It was gross and peeling like years ago. So it was just, I was like, all right, I did buy another shift knob a couple years ago at this point. And it never fit right. Like I'd put it on and there was like this goofy fucking gap at the bottom. So like you could see the metal and then like the boot wasn't like tied down nicely. So it was just like, yeah, it was just, which I was kind of pissed because I was like, yeah, I'm like, how the fuck, you know, this came from like Z1. And I was like, how the fuck are you going to sell a fucking, it wasn't Z1 brand, but it was like a Tomei brand or whatever. And I was like, how the fuck are you going to sell this shit specific for this car and have a goofy fucking gap on it? Like, this is this is bogus. I'll just drive with the fucking factory shift or like not not going to deal with this bullshit. But I finally got around to a solution like they do have this little like you get like a finisher with it. So like it's got like a little ring. But like there was mm-hmm. still a, a pretty significant gap between those. And I was like, this sucks. Like, and you can't spin it anymore. I'm like, it's going to like, it just doesn't fit right. So what I did was I got the assorted pack of wire grommets from AutoZone, which is in like the dormant section on the, uh, you know, in the parts where you find like the random shit, like, oh, here's springs and washers and door handles and shit. So they have this, a box of assorted wire grommets. And what I, the biggest one in that pack was just right to like fit over the shifter and sit between the shifter and like the little black finisher and so it fills that gap and it actually lets me tighten it down so that like it doesn't look goofy and it doesn't move around all silly so so now i finally have a you know decent cool ish looking shifter and it's a little bit lower down or whatever so it's a shorter shift travel or whatever not a short shifter but like you know the the knob is shorter yeah nice so anyway, good old, good old Dorman. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime I need some random shit, they come through <laughs> random shit. It was like, all right, this will, I, that was always the plan. Like, I'm like, I got to find some way to make this work. Like whether I'm going to use washers or something, I, I wasn't sure, but a wire grommet did the, did the trick. So, so yeah, anyway, that's pretty much all I got for right now. And I'll have more, uh, next time. I'll third the Dorman thing. Like I've had some oddball shit that only they made before. Yeah, it's just like you could repurpose a lot of that stuff for like, hey, yeah, you know, I bet this will work. Anytime that Dorman makes it, there's one other company that makes it, and it's some for some reason eight times the price. Yeah, because Dorman, I feel like Dorman makes a lot of those little things for the manufacturers, and then like the name brand is who charges you know full price for it. Mm -hmm. But Dorman's like, we make 
the name brand one. They just slap their label on it. So you yeah. can get ours for four dollars or spend forty on the one that says Ford on it. And it's like, yeah, fuck that. I'll just get the dormant one. Everyone congratulate Zach on discovering capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just feel like Dorman is that company. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, like, uh, I mean, no, but for, for serious, that's the way a lot of companies do work. But oh yeah, yeah. Uh, if if that were to be the case with Dorman and like whatever the equivalent on Summit Racing, that's like fifty seven dollars instead of three. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dorman just makes a lot of the generics. I should say. I didn't have yeah. to explain that out. Like I didn't understand how capitalism works. <laughs> Uh, I know you do. I'm kidding with you, buddy. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Oh, man. I definitely understand how capitalism works because I've worked on an Audi and they (laughs) are bastards (laughs) who make me spend so much money to get the simplest shit. I I had my own little doormat adventure with my Audi, actually. By the way, I got the mechanical cam adjuster onto the motor without pulling the motor off. I don't know if I had updated that yet. But it's on. I think you did. Yeah. You you talked about it last week. Yeah. Our last episode. Oh, that was just like such a huge thing. I'll just mention it again. It was like massive. But I'm making progress, getting everything put back together. The bad thing that I'm running into now is that there's a couple sensor wires on the front of the motor, one of which I cannot reach to plug back in. And the other two have to go into this little holder on the front, just like a little bracket that holds them away from the fans. And I'm having a hell of a time getting those into that. I think I'm probably going to have to pull the front bumper back at least maybe not disconnect everything, but at least disconnect the front bumper and front core support enough to pull it away from the engine to get to that. But no, otherwise it's been going pretty well. I had to customize a little vacuum tee. Uh, because it was like a uh, quarter inch by quarter inch by three sixteenths vacuum tee nice. reducer, which you cannot find anywhere in any material under any circumstances. Can you find this thing locally anyway? I found one on the internet, but fuck that. I wanted to get this thing done. So I took a quarter inch T that was quarter inch on all three sides and a five sixteenths or a, excuse me, a, um, three sixteenths straight piece and I shoved the three sixteenths <laughs> piece up inside the other T and covered the little end of it with uh super glue to kind of keep the two together. Nice. And I put it all together like oh, that. That's am- amateur hour. It's JB Weld or nothing. Oh man. <laughs> I was scared to do JB Weld on plastic. I felt like it wasn't gonna work. I thought the There the is a JB Weld for plastic, but I was trying to get this shit done with what I had on hand. J- Super JB Weld is the doorman of, of adhesives. <laughs> <laughs> they have everything. They <laughs> truly do. I had super glue with me though, so that's what I went with. Fair enough. But yeah, I, I got that thing all back together. There was, you know, just a little vacuum connection on the bottom side of the intake manifold. I got that all put together and now like I said, I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to get those sensors plugged in and, and into their brackets away from, you know, the, the fans and everything else. But, dude, the Audi is actually making progress. I'm actually staying positive about it. It's not been an absolute nightmare. Every single bolt has been a challenge, but I'm making progress. If I can get those few sensors plugged in and placed where they need to be, it's literally just add coolant, make sure the oil's good, run it, change out the coolant, 
change out the oil. Fucking done. Uh, does anyone want like a cool tip on super gluing things? Uh, yeah. Are you about to give the water one? Because I love this tip. Oh, I don't know the water one. Ooh, give me your tip and then I'll give you mine. Okay. Um, if you're worried that something's not going to stick for one reason or another, I actually learned this on a pair of glasses where I broke the bridge in half. What you can do is you can glue it together initially just so that it holds and then take thread, like just sewing thread mm -hmm. and wrap it around so that it forms a shell around it and then soak that in, in thin super glue. Like not like the gel type mm -hmm. or anything, but like the thin stuff that soaks in, it forms a really hard shell around and between the fibrous nature of the thread and the super glue, it's it's really, really fucking strong. And on the off chance that it does break, it still holds together because the fibers of the fat of the thread don't break. Oh, Damn, okay. that's a good one. That is a great tip. I will give you mine now. Yeah, let's hear it. And that is, you know how like if you get super glue on your fingers or anything, it seems to dry fucking immediately? Yeah. That's because there are oils on the skin of your fingers and all of your skin that are water-based. So if you're super gluing two things together, get something small like a toothpick or something and just lightly dab water on one side and then cover the other side in super glue and stick them together and it will adhere almost immediately. Hmm. Hmm. For some reason, water activates the adhesive within super glue and makes it adhere like basically instantaneously. Huh. I... I actually have another super glue tip hell yeah all the super glue tips let's go super glue and headlamps this week <laughs> gotta be some reason people listen to this fucking show so the super glue tips so if you want something that's like really tough like concrete or ceramic like i glued yesterday I actually glued the handle back on a mug that broke with super glue and what you do is you sprinkle baking soda on it and it makes it harden a little bit quicker but it also acts like the um what do you call it the gravel in concrete you know mm -hmm. in cement or whatever so like it acts like a hardener or whatever and you if can kind of build it up a little bit uh, if you need something a little thicker so hmm. i actually know about that trick uh from when you build miniatures and stuff that's a, a trick that yeah. people will use gluing things together sometimes and i will say that i actually think if you want strength the thread is the way to go. Yeah. What you're talking about works, but the thread works better, especially if you do it so that uh, you wind it one way and then do a second piece that's wound the other way so that it's like spiraling in opposite directions. It's right. nigh unbreakable, cool. you know, yeah. re relative to what you're working with. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason you couldn't do both. You know, you could do the baking, so baking soda or baking powder? Uh, baking soda. Yeah, you could do the baking soda hack and then cover it in thread. I'm pretty sure if you add all these super glue tips together, you can just make anything indestructible. Yeah, who needs carbon fiber? Just super glue and baking soda and thread. Yeah. <laughs> who needs carbon fiber when I've got Bondo? <laughs> right on. Well, is that it for car updates? Anybody got anything to add? No, uh, I, th no, I think that was uh, one of our. I feel like that feels like a really good car update for the week. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Uh, any other super glue tips or headlamp <laughs> advice? <laughs> I mean, everyone here on. knows that you can use super glue to glue a wound shut, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, like, sure. I, actually, that's even what it was designed to do originally. Yep. Okay. Well, this episode is brought to you by Milwaukee Dorman and super glue <laughs> and jamie walkie nothing but heavy duty yeah. honestly if they'll send us products i will like those are companies i feel i don't know about milwaukee's politics i'm sure that could be questionable but you know their products are good so oh yeah i'm sure their politics are horrible but hey send me free shit and i'll say your motto on the podcast so <laughs> i don't care i never let us forget that uh anytime somebody wants to like 
get on the show by buying me a blower. Just you know, s- send it on over, and I will advocate for you. Just <laughs> in, as, in so much as I can be honest about doing so. Uh, yeah, I should probably announce now. I'm going to be leaving sort of soonish before we finish, so I will have to jump off at some point, and I'll let you guys know when that is. And you know, whatever. So I won't be able to. We, uh, as usual, we talked for too long uh, before recording. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's just how we are. <laughs> All right. Well, Zach, you've got some stuff about m- some of the more modern Subaru stuff. I've got a little tidbit of Subaru history, if we're ready for that. Yeah, let's hear it. This is some history of how Subaru came to have all-wheel drive cars in the first place. Because we talked a little bit last time in the Malcolm Bricklin episode about how Subaru first started making cars. They were little K cars with uh, two-stroke engines and rear-wheel drive. And then they also started making front-wheel drive cars with a boxer engine. But in um, the late 60s, early 70s, they also began making all-wheel drive and four-wheel drive cars that they are known for today. So this is from JapaneseNostalgicCar.com, how Subaru became masters of all-wheel drive. So this starts in 1969. The Tohoku Electric Power Company in Northeast Japan was looking for some sort of off-road vehicles that could handle snowy roads or like um, dirt roads along power lines. They had a fleet of land cruisers. It's a it's a dedicated off-road machine. It's a truck chassis. But the employees didn't really like them because they had canvas tops, which is not so much fun in the winter. They approached Fuji Heavy Industries, aka Subaru, and said, "Hey, you got these four. You got these front-wheel drive cars. Do you think you could modify them to to be all-wheel drive?" This is the front-wheel drive FF1. Uh, I believe I talked a little bit about in the Malcolm Brooklyn episode. They modified them with they put a little bit of a lift on it. They put in some sort of a transfer case type thing from the rear of the front wheel drive transmission to a uh, rear differential from a uh, Datsun 510 wagon. So there's a little bit of a Nissan connection there. And actually, because both Nissan and Subaru kind of used the same architecture for a long time, you can still, to some degree, swap Nissan and Subaru rear differentials between, well, a 510 wagon and like a more modern Impreza or something like that. I don't know nice. if you can like take a diff out of a 350Z and put it in a Outback and make it work. But that would um, by God, <laughs> I'm going to try it though. <laughs> <laughs> so they built just eight of these custom prototype all-wheel drive wagons because it was such a success. They're like, hmm, maybe we should offer this to the public. And, uh, and that's when, you know, I believe it took until the 80s for them to sell a uh, a commercially available i think it was first a shiftable four-wheel drive and then eventually they did the all-wheel drive later on hmm. yeah a lot of the early early uh, gl wagons and things like that that people might be familiar with were shiftable four-wheel drive from like uh the the early to mid 80s i don't know when uh, specifically they implemented all-wheel drive but subaru definitely did some some shiftable four-wheel drive for a while there <laughs> yeah and I think even in like Australia and New Zealand until recently, you could get a Forester with like a low range gearbox or something like that. So really? like they've done some some interesting stuff in the uh, sort of off off road world. That's very cool. Yeah, that's all I've got. Zach, oh. uh, what's what did you want to talk about? Oh, well, you know, uh, just Subaru stuff in general. This is definitely going to be a little more loose and discussion based. I don't really have a ton of like sources or anything like that. 
I figured I would just start out with like my general Subaru knowledge where I'm coming from. And obviously that has its limitations. So I just want to put those out there. First things first, I'm no expert, but I do like Subarus a lot. And so I do know a fair bit about them. I bought a 99 Legacy Wagon about coming up on 10 years ago. And that was my first Subaru. And then about five years ago, I bought my 2011 Subaru WRX hatchback, which has been my main daily slash project car for the last like five years. So most of my Subaru knowledge is based around the Impreza chassis, the um, modern EJ, both NA and turbo motors, and kind of more the rally inspired Subaru stuff. I know, Bryant, you have a Subaru and you definitely have some, some pretty good Subaru knowledge as well. I figured we'd just kind of go through and talk about like what each of us knows, you know, just broadly about Subarus before we get into it. So uh, where where are you coming from when it comes to Subarus? Well, back in the day, my dad had a uh, first gen Forester around 2001, I think. And I drove that quite a bit. It was pretty stout little wagon. And then I got my 2005 Subaru five, five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. And I've done a little bit of maintenance on both my dad's car and mine. Um, so I know the, the general platform, uh, you know, I've, some of my friends had older Subarus. Like I knew a guy in college that had, I think it was an 84 that like was a carbureted engine. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so very old school. Uh, and then I had a roommate that had like a 93, I think Leon wagon with a three speed automatic that would top out around 60 miles an hour. Oh yeah. Uh, very cool. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my Ford with a 300 cubic inch engine only does about 65. So like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to criticize. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, that's about the extent of my knowledge. I mean, uh, once we get into the nitty gritty, I can chime in a little bit. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, like I said, broad strokes here. We'll just kind of talk about where we're coming from. And then uh, Brandon, I know you've got a buddy who has one that you've worked on quite a bit and had some fun times with their uh, nifty little brake line design. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, uh, yeah, man. I didn't even hate it. I actually thought it was a good design except for one thing. Uh, the gist of it being that the brake lines pass through the cab instead of being mm-hmm. routed underneath the car. And in the rust belt where we salt the roads and everything rots to shit, to me, that seems really good. Yeah, that the, seems great. That seems amazing. Dude, honestly, the, the problem that I encountered and fixed was that as it passed through like the firewall or, or whatever, there was no connector like at the bulkhead. Yep. So it was a solid line that went from mm. whatever, I don't think it went straight from the master cylinder, but whatever other part that it connected to, it went down through the cab or through the firewall along the bottom of the interior and then out the back as one piece. So yeah, I, had to, I had to cut out some damaged parts to fix his brake lines and I just put in couplers at either end. And now if it ever needs worked on again, it'll be the easiest fucking thing in the world to pull out. Yeah, that's the the beauty of the Subarus. They they have like ingenious designs that's quirky and horrible in some ways and just fucking inspired in other ways. Whenever I'm working on my Subaru, um, half of the time I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And then I'm like, why the fuck would you do it this way? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll say right. that I know I know a lot of my friends are, are domestic guys who like older cars and I honestly, at this point, feel like their hatred for a lot of import stuff is just because they're used to the quirks of American stuff. But yeah. when they're mm-hmm. exposed to new quirks, they're like, no, this is stupid. 
Yeah, and that's, I think, a through line that I'll probably harp on quite a lot on this is that Subarus are quirky cars, even among, you know, imports, among JDM cars, among, you know, whatever specific category you want to put them in. They are quirky, but once you get used to those quirks, I think they're some of the easiest cars to work on in general, as far as what I've come across. And as I've talked about on the show before, I have a background in American muscle, American classics. I've gone through, you know, German engineering. I've gone through other Japanese cars. To me, their quirks were the easiest for me to figure out and the easiest to work on in the end. But they are quirky. They are very quirky. Yeah. And Brandon, you said you mentioned like salt and rust and stuff. And that reminds me. I really need to wash my Subaru because it's covered in road salt right now. On that specific generation of Impreza hatches, the rear strut towers tend to rust out before anything else. Oh, and yeah. then you're going to have a real bad day when that strut punches through into the interior and says hello. Uh, oh, like yeah. <laughs> Quirks aside, I will say that I look at a lot of, and especially front wheel drive stuff, but I look at a lot of import things and I'm like, I don't even know where to start with this. And honestly, when I look at the engine bay of a Subaru, I'm like, yes, this is a boxer configuration, but everything else makes sense to me. Yeah, that's that's cool to hear that, you know, it has some familiarity to when I, when I work on my buddy's Subaru or help him with it. I look at it and I think, like, not only can I imagine this being an incredibly easy engine to pull out if I needed to n- nothing like there's space to work on it. It doesn't I take the advantages of working on like a rear wheel drive, like American V8. And everyone talks about how easy those are to work on. And I remove all of the ease by putting it in a van. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So when, when everyone's like, oh, it's so easy to work on a small block Chevy. I'm like, you know, what? I don't feel like that's always that true. Um, to be honest, so- I feel like that's often not true. Like, you know, dealing with like my Camaro and stuff, I'm just like, this kind of just sucks. I like it's everything I have to do. If it's per cylinder, I have to do it eight times don't love that and there's just there's not that much fucking space like you're they're complaining really... about having a fucking eight cylinder motor shut the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> it's a pain in the ass what can i say <laughs> all right all right not to uh not to interrupt or anything but uh connor i know you got to get out of here pretty quickly do you uh do you want to give us a quick rundown where are you coming from what what kind of super knowledge do you have any anything at all when my usual car antics result in me not having a car to drive. I drive my partner's very reliable Subaru. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which I, I hold on, which I should clarify. We don't work on. It's not cool. It's a cross track. Hey, I think a cross track is cool. Although for look, for being a little, for being, <laughs> but a that's little, just me. You know, it's nice. It's got like room for the dog crate and stuff. Get the groceries. Like when I get the groceries, this. Some of them might come back broken. Like it ain't right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no. When my car's in the shop, which is or I fuck up and I'm working on it or something, um, there's a lot of time where I'm driving the 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 nice car, which is her car. Nice. <laughs> so nice, that's you know, where, that's where I'm coming from there. <laughs> I um, I know a little bit about Subarus. I just you know they're not my cup of tea per se. Right. Right. Totally fair. And I mean, I think that's something that, you know, I'll definitely go over in this. They are not for everyone. I think that a lot of people who are into them think that, uh, you know, everyone should be driving a Subaru. And I very much disagree. I think that there is 
plenty of people who should not be driving Subarus for one reason or another. But yeah, we can we can get into that. And uh, I feel like I should mention I do, I do have a I have a good friend of mine who's very into Subaru knows has knowledge that may be on the level of yours, Zach. He knows mm-hmm. everything there is to know, and you know, heck, even my partner knows a lot more about a lot of Subaru stuff than I do. She's like up to date on all of this. She's like, well, this and this, and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I'm uh, I'm like air fuel air fuel spark <laughs> question mark <laughs> you know uh so i i know it as far as like an engine works that's what i understand i understand the boxer is yeah. obviously very different it has certain oiling issues and stuff here and there but like as far as i've always heard if you take care of it and you are good about changing your fluids which is true of any car it mm-hmm. can be very reliable for what that's worth i i think they they are an interesting design that i think is very cool i think it has some yeah, obviously, like anything else, it has some shortcomings and it has some, uh, what's the opposite of a shortcoming? Uh, strength, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, a yeah, tall, the benefits. A tall going. Uh, it's got some <laughs> tall goings as well. Um, some shortcomings uh, and some tall goings. I don't think that's an expression, but I think it should be. <laughs> some some waterfalls and some fireflies. <laughs> there you go. So, um, But anyway, so that's kind of where I come from. I as a as a daily driver, that boxer engine has never failed us. It's not super high mileage, but it's been good. And Subaru can make a decent fucking car, it seems like. So so all on board for that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Let's talk about what the the EJ platform is specifically. So that's what's gonna be in most Subarus from well, let's see here. As introduced in nineteen eighty nine up until the advent of the FB and the FA platforms, uh, which the FA you're going to find in, in more modern Subaru WRXs. The FB was in things like the Outback and cross tracks and things like that. Going back to about 2013, both of them yeah. boxer what? engines like we've talked about. Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I think the EJ was introduced in Japan about then. But I think it mm-hmm. showed up in the U.S. around 94. Okay, and yep. then it was used in the STI up until like 22. So a good long while. Yeah, yeah. 2021 was going to be the last year of the EJ and anything at all. Uh, most Subarus had already moved on to the, either the FB or the FA platform at that point. But yeah, the Subaru STI, as far as... Uh, 2021 was still using the EJ platform. So a very long-lived engine. I think that's a lot of people's gripes with it towards the end there was that it was a very old engine to a lot of people. If you're into Chevys and you're into LSs, you would think that that's probably not very long because that's about the same or similar timeline as the uh, LS was in production and, and used primarily. I was thinking that because I'm used to small blocks, which were in for 50 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was a, it was, you know, and I'm sure we could find another like oh, Volkswagen yeah. flat fours were used for like 70 years or something. So, oh, yeah, but. they're they're, uh, you know, old to some people, but it really depends on your perspective, I think, more right. than anything else. But yeah, as always, or as far as I'm concerned with Subarus, still using a boxer platform to this day, as I pretty much always have which is a unique design. If you're not familiar, instead of an inline or a V configuration, if you take the difference between an inline to a V and you continue that angular progression all the way out 
until the pistons are completely directly opposed. That's where you get a boxer platform. And they're often called a boxer because one piston is going forward simultaneously as the other one is going back, kind of like a boxer's fists back and forth. Yeah, if you look at it from the side, that is. Yeah, yeah. Back and forth or or out and in, if you're looking at it from the top. Right and left and yeah. left and right as the two banks oppose. Pretty unique design. has has some inherent flaws. Generally, is it generally like, let's say I'm going to number it like, the front cylinders are they're like directly opposed although one's technically in front of the other mm-hmm. and is it like so when that one's going down the other one's going up right so like they almost move Correct. together the pistons move together more so than I yeah mean, so there's not really a down and up but I, they're yeah they're yes. they're if they're you want to think about it that pairs. way okay yeah they're they're grouped together in pairs and they move inward and outward at the same time yeah. The if front, you look at it, if you look at it from the top, you've got four cylinders, right? Yeah, two going left and two mm-hmm. going right. So the front right cylinder we can call cylinder number one, and then the back right we can call cylinder number two. Front left we okay. can call three, back left we can call four. So one and four are going to move together, <clears throat> and two and three are going to move together. So uh, opposite corners. Okay. Okay, I see how this works. Yeah. All right. So. It, uh, because so of that, I get it now. I get it. Yes, yes. Because of okay. this setup, it is an inherently balanced primary force engine. If you know uh, primary forces versus secondary forces, when it comes to, uh, I'm not sure. Know, I know those. Terms. Yeah, I actually don't. Reciprocating engines. Okay, so the primary forces in an engine are the pistons moving in and out, up and down, left and right depends on the setup but that that is the primary force within an engine oh, I think I s- secondary forces within an engine would be things like the crank going up and down kind of and that uh rotational force so the secondary forces within uh a boxer engine are not balanced that's why that's part of the reason they kind of have that off kilter sound to them that and unequal length well, headers, but we can get into that as well. Yeah, later on, you can use counterweights and stuff to make it more or less completely balanced. Right? They're not. Let me put it this way: they're not inherently balanced. Yeah. Like, and as, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but the the big one of the big advantages of a boxer engine is you don't need balance shafts like you do with most mm-hmm. four cylinder engines. It's so like so most. Four-cylinder engines produced today, especially if they're two liters or more displacement, will have two balance shafts that run at, I think, half crankshaft speed um, and sort of have counterweights on them and counteract some of those secondary vibrations. With a boxer engine, you don't need that. So you have less weight spinning around. You have less um, chains or, or gears or whatever. Um, yep. So it's it's a little bit more reliable. And it's less mass moving around, so it revs a little bit quicker if you don't have a big flywheel on it. And in theory, it's more efficient that way. Yep, exactly. Interesting. I think on that note, I have to probably duck out of here, but I now know what a boxer engine is. <laughs> hey, that's a, a good place to leave us. Uh, yeah. It literally, yeah it's, it's literally the configuration of two people facing each other, boxing their hands against each other. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. And because of that, it inherently balances the primary forces. It's wonderful. Yeah. I dig it. 
Um, all right. Well, so on that note, I will uh, duck out of here. But, uh, you know, as usual, follow our social medias and stuff or rate our podcast if you like us. If you don't like us, maybe don't rate us. I, I don't want to hear it. But, you know, yeah. all that good stuff. We are not if you don't like us, fuck off. We don't care what you have to say. Leave us alone. <laughs> if you don't like us, why are you this far into the episode? <laughs> we have talked so much about so much shit. Super glue. Headlamps. What are you doing here? Get out of here. All right. Well. Uh, later guys it All was right. fun good to see you yep. yeah good talking have a good All night right. take it easy ma'am so now that we've kind of gone over the basics of what uh, a boxer is let's talk about some of the inherent flaws within the boxer so if you're familiar with physics at all you know that gravity pulls down uh and with inline and v shaped engines some amount of gravitational force is going to be pulling the piston back down to its lowest position. Even in a V, this force will work with the piston to pull it back down to bottom dead center. This does not happen in a boxer engine. The gravitational force is pulling the piston against the cylinder wall the entire time that it's operating, which means that it is inherently technically the least efficient setup for a piston when it comes to the forces that are acting upon it outside of the engine. That is a massive inherent flaw within the engine. I'm going to, I'm going to have to push back on that little Zach. Okay. I don't, I don't know if that's true necessarily. Like I know, are you talking about like the, the friction on the cylinder wall or do you mean like the actual gravity on the piston itself? I mean, the friction of the piston against the cylinder wall as it's being pulled down through gravity. Yeah, okay. like with a, with a straight six, gravity is perfectly working with the like ignition stroke, and with a V eight, it's it's still working like alongside with gravity. As to where a boxer motor, it's gravity is not assisting at all. Yeah, it's well, only it is creating drag. I think yeah. I think it all evens out more or less in the in the end. To be honest, like I don't know what does a piston weigh like half a pound or something. Like that much force is going to be on the cylinder walls, but like you're going to have a whole lot more force on the piston skirt from the actual force of combustion or whatever. Oh yeah, uh, it's absolutely the, overcome by other forces within the engine. Just to be completely fair, from a physics standpoint, technically gravity is. Unlike any other engine setup, any other configuration, let me put it this way. It is not assisting you whatsoever, whereas in others, it technically is, where you are constantly being pulled back down on the ignition and exhaust strokes. That's, I think, where it evens out is because you've got another piston at the same time going up if you've got an, an even number of cylinders. So, I mean, I think that like, this is how the comparison lands for me. I don't know if this will work, but like you hear fighters talk about how like, you know, once when you're, it's one-on-one and you're just like standing and punching each other, that's one thing. But if you can get the person on the ground and be on top of them, the additional force that gravity aids you in punching downwards is a lot more intense than you would realize. Especially hmm. when you compare the fact that, like, the person beneath you is having to punch upwards against gravity. It, right. It does, it does create a force that, like, is working against you. 
It's okay. more you're you're more I think talking about like how difficult is that force to overcome? I still think it evens out in an even number of cylinders, but I maybe we're talking about different things. But um, I do enough. know that with with a flat engine, you tend to get um, oil um, sticks to that more horizontal cylinder, right? Um, exactly. So that it, you know, it kind of pools in there, and that has its advantages and disadvantages. But it does mean that you generally have like more oil in the cylinder on startup, which is helpful, you know, for wear and that sort of thing, which is one of the reasons why to some degree, uh, Subarus can be pretty reliable engine wise in other ways. They're not, I have heard people say like, don't idle your engine to warm it up because it doesn't always get oil to all the important areas. And I think that might be less true for a Subaru because, you know, you're getting that oil splashing on, the actual uh, cylinder walls and not running down with gravity. Yeah. And that's kind of the next point where I was going towards with that is that, you know, sorry sorry if I'm jumping ahead there. No, you're good. No, you're good. Thank you for uh, segueing us into that. Yeah. So because the, uh, the flat setup is technically being, you, you have gravity pulling down on the, the piston as it, as it moves side to side, you're also, having gravity pull against the oil at the same time, right? Like you were saying. So because of that, you do get that pooling effect in the bottom of the cylinder, which does on startup have, you know, a benefit wherein, you know, the, the oil will not leak back down into the pan. It will stay there in the cylinder on the opposite side of that, you know, until you get full oil, uh, lubricity viscosity at like operating temperature you are working with a less lubricated cylinder wall which is fine for normal operating but it's why especially in an ej you do not want to push it until it comes up to full temperate temperature which is true for all engines right but especially in an ej that can that can cause ring land failure almost immediately maybe not one time, but if you really push an EJ hard, especially before it's up to operating temperature, that it's only going to handle that a few times before it just lets go. And, uh, you know, obviously not lubricating a piston is going to kill any engine, but it is especially easy to do before operating temperature in an EJ because of that that uh, inherent sidewaysness of the piston and cylinder, uh, which brings right. us to our next inherent flaw, which is the ring lands. This is not necessarily an inherent flaw to a flat or boxer engine, but the EJ for a long time has had ring land issues. I think we've all heard about the head gasket issues. That was definitely a big deal on the naturally aspirated ones. There was um, a great fix for that, an MLS gasket, a multi-layer steel gasket, pretty much took that problem and just eliminated it. But the ring lance is a big, big deal. And I think you actually, we had talked about this before recording. You had a really good way of putting it. I can't remember exactly what you said, Brian. What, what did you say about the ring lands? I, I forget exactly, but I mean, they have most Subarus, except maybe like a STI, I think have cast pistons, mm-hmm. um, which you know, is, is weaker than forged or whatever, but also they just have a, the ring land is basically the, the area of where the rings go on, on EJ motors, the area between the crown of the piston 
and the first ring is rather small. That's and it. Yep. so it just had it's just under a lot of stress. And if you have, like you said, if you put enough boost in it, if you really hammer on it, if it's cold or whatever, that can crack. Worst case scenario, like the piston explodes and chunks fly everywhere and you ruin your engine. Yeah. To to kind of put it all in summation, I think the biggest issues that we've kind of covered about the EJ specifically is when it comes down to oiling. Uh, I guess there's, there's one more that I, I should mention before we kind of summarize, which is the oil pickup. The oil pickup in a Subaru is not all the way on the bottom of the oil pan. So if you run them low on oil, you're actually much more likely to have oil starvation because the oil pickup, unlike other oil pan and pickup setups, is not running right up against the bottom of the pan. So you actually only need to be about a quart low and go, I would say, probably over half a lateral G-force to induce oil starvation. If you're at 0.6 Gs of lateral force and a quart low, you will probably starve an EJ of oil because of its design. Yeah, That is an inherent flaw within uh, the design. Why in the actual fuck would they not have the pickup go to the bottom of the pan? I could not tell you. It is one of my biggest I, pet peeves with Subarus. I, I don't understand it. Brian, do you have a good reasoning behind it? Do you know? No. And and also, I've heard that the stock oil pickup is kind of brittle and can break off um, yeah. If yep. in certain situations. So, like, I do know that if you're ever going to open up your Subaru engine and make a performance engine out of it, one of the things you should do is get a good oil pickup aftermarket uh, oil pickup um, that will go down the full amount, have a you know good wide strainer on the bottom of it, and also be braced to the block so it doesn't like wiggle and snap off. And while you're in there, get baffling. Yeah, honestly, that's you know those things alone could probably save you ninety five to ninety nine percent of the time. But while you're in there, baffle the oil pan as well, just because you're there. You know, might and, as well. And another disadvantage of the boxer engine design is that, you know, the oil tends to slosh to the side in a in an mm-hmm. engine with lateral G's, like you were saying, because you, you've got oil passages that go into the heads on either side. There's a pretty clear path for the oil to slosh into the heads, into the valve covers and just stay there. And then that can cause oil starvation. And it can also cause, you know, oil to go through the... Um, the breather and yeah. uh, you know, ingest into the engine and burn that oil. So if you open up an, uh, Subaru intake manifold or, uh, um, whatever, um, uh, intercooler it's, and it's been used for any length of time, it's probably going to have a little bit of oil on the inside of there. Um, right. Which <laughs> I didn't mention because honestly, if you're checking your oil regularly, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. You will run technically yeah. less efficiently because you're burning oil instead of just, pure gasoline but the biggest issue is getting low on oil from that because you are going to burn some oil inherently but as all vehicles you should be checking your oil efficiently or uh, regularly to make sure that it's running efficiently as possible i guess we should have a little aside here to talk about maintenance since we're talking about flaws um which to me the biggest thing with Subarus is that your oil change interval 
and your oil check interval needs to be almost absurdly shorter than other cars. Like, if it has a turbo, I would say 3,000 miles. Change your oil. Without a turbo, I would say 5,000 maximum. I mean, I... I I stretch mine to four or five thousand on my tur- turbo car, but uh, and I if you're I familiar like with the car, if you're familiar with the car, if you're checking <laughs> regularly, you are probably fine. I'm a little over four thousand myself right now on mine, you know. But if you're new to the platform, if you're you know running it hard regularly, especially, I would say three thousand on a turbo motor, five thousand maximum. I know a lot of more modern cars are calling for and i think even subaru is calling for like a seven thousand mile uh oil change interval don't do that frankly i think that's a really bad idea on these motors even the new fa platforms i think it's just a bad idea change them more regularly than you would any other car it's just a little bit more money and the peace of mind is well worth it in my opinion i think that's going to give you the best chance at having the longest life of your car possible and this is coming from i maybe should have mentioned this in you know right out the get-go my car currently makes a little over 300 horsepower to the wheels and it has 177,000 miles on it and it runs like a freaking yeah. champion i mean it will knock you back in the back of your seat i can go flat out in third gear around a corner i can run i don't baby my car i run it and i run it pretty hard and it's making a decent amount of power and is just handling it just fine. So, you know, if you're easily my worst, these things, my worst characteristic as a car guy is that I do not check my oil enough. And I mean, on an old American V8, it's probably fine, dude. Like, I don't think. Why that would you say really... that every one of them leaks oil? <laughs> that's, that's fine. They just leak oil. They're fine. They just run, you know? They don't have these issues. I think, and we'll get into this, the EJ platform specifically, it's just so imperative that you're just a fucking hawk about it, just on it all the time, because it just, it can't handle it like other motors can. You, you cannot slack on your oil like you can in a lot of engines. Yeah. And also, if you're going to do some kind of performance uh, build on your engine, you probably want some kind of oil catch can on yeah. your breathers. So you don't get yeah. all that oil in your engine. Yeah, an air oil separator or intake. and yeah, an yeah. air oil separator or a, an oil catch can is imperative. And I, I would highly recommend the IAG air oil separator. It's a great build. It's like four hundred and fifty bucks. It's really high quality. I don't think there's probably anything on the market that's better. Um, you can buy cheaper ones, um, but they come with their issues. Yeah, I've got the I've got like the thirty dollar Wish dot com one. And it's kind of rattles. It doesn't really like attach to the firewall 100. percent But yeah, uh, it you know, seems hey, to be it's working. probably better than nothing. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, as long as you got something on there, I think you're probably better than not. Um, right. So now that we've talked a lot of shit about the EJs, let's move on to my next category: the inherent advantages of boxer engines. What might those be? First and foremost, oh, can can I talk about some more flaws? Go for it. Yeah, talk some more shit. What, okay. what else you got? <laughs> so because the way that the boxer engine is made, you basically have two halves to the block uh, that yes. go around the crankshaft. The split case so design. In a, in a, exactly, yeah. So like on a normal four-cylinder, you've got the block is all one piece, and then you have some bearing caps that hold the crankshaft in. 
um, on a Subaru, it's each half of the block is bolted together. And this means that there's like, I don't know, 20 or so steel bolts that are holding everything together under tension and everything else is under compression. And that could be a little bit flexible. Um, So like as the engine is heating up, cooling down, vibrating, moving, those gasket surfaces can kind of move a little bit and everything's not 100% rigid as it might be in like, I don't know, an LSV8 that's iron block or whatever. So you can have some problems with like the, um, especially if you have like an open deck uh, design, like uh, most EJ motors are, you can have the top of the um, cylinder bore kind of wiggles back and forth. And uh, that's how you can like blow head gaskets or like wear out pistons and cylinders prematurely. Yeah, Um, that totally reminded me of a huge flaw that I forgot to mention because I my notes are terrible, Um, which is the open deck design. But yeah, I'll let you finish. Yeah, unless that was the next flaw that you had on your list. We could talk. That's about it. Yeah. So like, I, I guess I don't know. Do you do you want to explain the difference between open deck and closed deck? Yeah, I was gonna um, talk about that a little more on my what it takes to make power on an EJ, um, but yeah, an open deck versus closed deck. Let's talk about that because that is probably one of the biggest flaws that I completely uh, glossed over for some reason. Completely forgot to mention. So an open deck, basically, where the engine block meets the cylinder head on the engine block is considered the deck of it. The open deck means that there are coolant jackets in passages around the cylinder head that are open all the way out to the edge where the the cylinder and the, the engine block meet the head. They're completely open. This means that there's not a lot of structure around the cylinder itself in terms of like actual aluminum, like metal around the cylinder walls, which means that they can under boost and high power flex and wiggle around kind of like you were talking about Brian. And uh, obviously that's not good. You don't want your cylinder wall to be moving. Closed decking is basically CNC machining an insert to be placed down into that opening in the engine block, which adds a lot of rigidity and stability to the cylinder. Uh, is that because is that like welded in place and then you redeck it, or is it like how how is that installed? I believe it's like a heat or like a press fit or something like that. Right? Okay. The the way I understand it is that it's CNC'd to be a precise like an exact fit, and then liquid nitrogen frozen to shrink and then press yeah. in. And then once it's brought back up to temperature, it obviously expands into place and is just stuck there, obviously, because it's it's so precisely CNC'd. It's the way I understand it to be made. Yeah, so you have to machine the block and the insert to to each other, basically. Yeah, yeah, like a, a okay. perfect machine. I mean, that, that's not too, too crazy. And there were a few different variants of the EJ that were closed deck from the factory or semi-closed. Semi-closed, yeah. I don't believe you ever got what would be considered a fully closed deck from factory, but yeah, semi-closed for sure. Yeah. And it's all the STI motors, either the, the JDM or the USDM STI motors, I believe are all. Did USDM ever get a semi-closed deck? 
because like maybe in the I thought two they liter, did, but I might I'm be wrong. Less familiar with. I know that the uh, the the two liter definitely the twenty two B definitely got a semi closed deck. That's like the the pinnacle of of the Subaru world uh, is you know the two point two liter uh, JDM SCI. But I I wasn't mm. sure that any USDM motor got a semi closed, but I definitely could be wrong about that. I'm super not familiar with the two liters in general. When an engine is two liters, that is interesting to me because I just I can only think of like a soda, yeah. <laughs> a, a, a bottle of soda. I'm like, your engine is only that big. It's just as big as a Mountain Dew. Uh, it was mostly the smaller two liter or two point two liter turbo motors that were uh, the JDM ones. Yeah, for um, sure, and that's why a lot yeah. of people do the uh, JDM STI, the EJ two hundred seven swaps into yeah. more modern. Or just USDM Supers. Yeah, and if I had the money for that, I I might do that swap on my car if the engine ever blows up, you know. Oh yeah, that would be a, a killer swap to do. I'd fully support that for sure. Very. But cool. I think those motors are like four thousand bucks for the long block or something. Yeah. So that's about what I've seen. Four to five, depending on what they come with and what condition. Right. Uh, did you have anything else with the uh, flaws? Can we? Are we going to talk some more shit or? Uh... We, uh, we I can I can talk about the shit. port design is kind of shitty. Yeah, let's talk about that because I actually don't um, know. I'm interested in that. that. Let's hear it. Yeah, what's up with the ports? So the original boxer engines that Subaru made, they had Siamese ports, which means like for the exhaust, the two adjacent cylinders go into one port. And they kept using this design through, I think, the early 90s. And then also some of the later six-cylinder engines had Siamese ports and this can be good for some things like I think it w- at least in the later model engines it was basically to keep the cats hot for like startup emissions reasons mm-hmm. I don't know why the earlier motors had that other than just like the compactness of the exhaust system but it doesn't flow very good some people will say oh no it's fine don't worry about it whatever would they did eventually do like a, a you know each cylinder has its own exhaust port and intake port but mm-hmm. They're not symmetrical on all cylinders. The two rear cylinders, the exhaust ports do like a little S dogleg curve right. to put to put the exhaust ports right next to each other rather than a little bit spaced apart. I, I'm not 100% sure what the reason for that was other than just making the exhaust more compact so that they could have, you know, this radius of bend in the exhaust and still fit it into a certain space. The result of that is that those rear cylinders get a lot more heat in the heads because the exhaust has to go a more circuitous path. And those are the uh, those are the cylinders that tend to fail on a Subaru for a variety of reasons. Also, they don't have as great oil and coolant distribution to those cylinders. Um, yeah, the, the fourth cylinder definitely has a uh, coolant issue, hence the cylinder four coolant mod that a lot of people do yeah and i i have done well i i hope it made a difference we'll see but yeah like even their newer model engines have a pretty similar design so i i really would like to talk to a subaru engineer that worked on the heads and say what the fuck were you thinking what's what's the reason for this port design yeah you know that's not something that i'd ever really thought about all that much <laughs> to be quite honest i thought that they were kind of splitting the difference there and bringing the exhaust ports into the center of the head from each side, not straight down from the front cylinders and then all the way forward from the rear cylinders, which is, as I'm understanding it, 
what you're saying that they are doing. Yeah. Bringing it all the way forward. Yeah, they are basically straight on the front cylinders, I believe. That's, yeah, that seems really absurd to me. I thought it was kind of, kind of centered, but I guess not. Uh, yeah, that's pretty dumb. But wow, that's a lot of flaws. Do we have any more? <laughs> I'm sure I'll think of something. All right. Well, before you do, let's move on to the good things before I completely reconsider my love for Subarus altogether. Okay. Now, my friend who likes 60s Mopar says that Subarus are terrible and don't have good things. Well, he's into 60s Mopar, so his <laughs> opinion is irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, let's talk about the advantages of boxer engines. And right out the gate, I think that, you know, if you're mechanically inclined, if you understand physics, you might see the main one, which is that it's flat. It's low. All of the weight of the engine, all of the rotating and reciprocal mass of the engine is down low. Basically, in at least the WRX platform, and because Subaru makes everything basically the same, most of the platforms, the entirety of the mass and reciprocal and rotating mass, so static mass, i.e. the block, the heads, and reciprocal, i.e. the pistons and rods, and rotating, i.e. the crankshaft, camshafts, all of that mass sits no higher than the frame rails, pretty much. Maybe a little bit higher. But basically, at the same height as the frame rails, which are pretty much dead even with the center of the tires. What this means is that you have an extremely low center of gravity in your car, which, if you know anything about anything, you can tell right away, is a huge advantage. If you don't have a whole bunch of weight way up high, swinging back and forth, and instead you keep that weight really low, you have a much more balanced car, an easier car to prevent body roll, a car that is easier to stay planted in the corners, and a car that is generally just better handling. That is, in my opinion, probably the biggest inherent benefit to a boxer engine and to the EJ in general. It also allows the a much lower hood line than you would... Mm-hmm with an inline or a V engine. So you can have better, better forward visibility. You don't have to have a really high long hood um, compared to like an Audi, let's say. Yep. Lower coefficient of drag. We could say as Mm. well, not, not as big of a big flat block to push through the air. Lots, lots better pedestrian safety. Yeah. That too. You happen to run into someone. That's true too. I wasn't considering that, but yes, (laughs) that as well. (laughs) Brian, do you have any other (laughs) Inherent uh, advantages um, of boxer engines. I, I just wanted to. Well, it's it's a shorter engine too. So like, yeah. I'm I'm no. I know that you're going to get into this with a symmetrical all wheel drive. But so mm. a Subaru has longitudinal engine mounting. So the the crankshaft is in line with the center line of the car. It's pointed forwards. Mm-hmm. Um, most all wheel drive cars, you know, if they're going to have a four cylinder, they're going to have a transverse engine like a front wheel drive car. And then they're yep. going to have a complicated transfer case system to get power to the rear. Subaru, it's not that much longer of an engine than just a four-cylinder turn on its side, a transverse engine. So it's it's very compact front to back. So you don't have a huge weight hanging off the front of the transmission like you would in, say, an Audi, which has a very similar all-wheel drive setup, mm-hmm. but it's an inline or a V engine. So you have better weight distribution front to back than you would uh, otherwise. 
it's still not as good as maybe something with a transverse motor that's a front wheel drive based vehicle, but it's it's better than it could be with a, like an Audi or whatever. right exactly. And then you know if you do go to that transverse mounted engine, obviously you're getting uh, you know the inherent disadvantages of that being that you know it's just as wide side to side as you know a boxer, and you have the entire front of the engine up against a frame rail. So if you ever go to yeah. work on it, all of your pulleys, your drive system, everything that would be on the front of an engine is up against a frame rail, which is right. you know obviously pretty difficult for working on it, which is the next kind of uh, inherent advantage that I would consider about a boxer engine, which is the ease of work. I think that, like I said before, genuinely one of the easiest cars I've ever had to work on. And people will talk about pulling the engine to do spark plugs or something goofy like that. Um, and <laughs> no, yes, you, you can. No, you do not. Yes, you can do it with some swivels and some extensions pretty easily. But if you're capable of getting a car up on its jack stands, there are two little bolts on the bottom that hold the motor mounts into the cross member. And then all you have to do is put a jack with a block of wood under the oil pan, under anywhere that you can get the jack onto and push that motor up as far as it'll go. And now your spark plugs, your entire head is basically above the frame rail. It is not that hard to do. And I promise you, if you're capable of changing your oil, you're capable of doing this. It makes that job a million times easier. I don't know why people don't talk about it as much, but all you have to do, and you would have to do this either way, is pull off the air intake and the intake box, pull out the battery, and then raise that engine up inside the engine bay. And your spark plugs are very, very easy to get to. I've and done valve covers this way, coil packs, spark plugs, so many things that are on the heads, which seem very difficult to get to when they're up against the frame rail. Because it's such a low motor, you have a ton of room to push it up above those frame rails and get to it. Yeah. Dude, honestly, I'm at the point where I feel like everyone can just go fuck themselves with any piece of advice they give me. I had to make a special tool to remove <laughs> the spark plugs from my small block Chevy recently because any regular wrench was completely blocked off by my head. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's another and thing you don't have to worry about. The the exhaust manifold is on the underside of the head. And the spark plugs are on 90 degrees away. I'm not saying it's easy or hard. I'm just saying everything is stupid. You don't like cars because it's the easy thing to do. That's fair. Yeah. And Zach, I think maybe you're talking about the 2.5 liter engine as uh -huh. far as like jacking up the engine and stuff. Like yeah. I, I did spark plugs and coils on my two liter engine without moving the engine at all. It just took out the airbox and the battery and it's, you know, it's a little bit of a struggle to get in there with a, a wrench and socket and whatnot. But, you know, you can do it. I didn't I don't think I even had any swivel bits or anything like that. Yeah. And you can definitely do it on a 2.5 as well. I think you might need a swivel to do it. But like, honestly, it wasn't worth the time for me. Like, I would mm. much rather just jack up my car and push the engine, like pull two motor mount bolts and push the engine up above, above the frame rails because. Yeah. I just didn't want to bust my knuckles and, and grind skin off my knuckles trying to get down deep in there. I, I knew I could do it. And so I just pushed it up a bunch above the frame rails. Maybe the 2.5 is a little more difficult to do it if it's down in between the frame rails, but people act like it's way harder than it actually is. And then, you know, doing timing on the car, 
pretty easy. I did it inside the car. That was not as difficult as some people might make it out to be. I did that with, you know, the motor in the car. Now, here's something if you want to do extra hard mode. One of my old coworkers had a Subaru, I think it was a Forester with the 2.5 single cam engine. Mm-hmm. He said, I never saw this, but he claimed that he replaced the head gaskets with the engine still in the car. Yeah, that is definitely possible. Uh, even on the more complicated, like the dual overhead cam engines, you can do that. It is okay. not a good time. I've seen people do it before. I've seen like not in real life because I don't know anyone that crazy, but I, and honestly, I don't know why you would, I can pull an engine out of a Subaru in an hour at most. All of the wiring for the engine is on one big block. It's literally one connector that all comes to one point. And then there are two grounding straps and that is the entirety of the wiring. The way that the, uh, accessory drive is set up you just remove the secondary belt and then your ac compressor flips upside down and over to one side and your power steering pump flips upside down and over to the other side and then you know you don't have to break open the ac you don't have to break over the power steering that just comes off fuel lines come off pretty easily you know coolant lines come off relatively easily and then basically you've just got bell housing bolts and then the whole motor comes out it's really not yeah. a hard engine to pull at all. And I think that kind of goes into the ease of work on a Subaru chassis in general. And because Subaru basically made all of their vehicles exactly the same for the past 30 plus years, you once you do it on one, you kind of know how to do it on all of them, more or less. And that also means that you can swap parts between different vehicles in different years and kind of make a hodgepodge. People have taken the flat six from a Tribeca and put it in a BRZ, uh, you know, little rear wheel drive sports car. Yep. Um, and I think all you need to do is like relocate the starter and everything else bolts up. Oh, yeah. There's tons of that. I mean, people make hybrid WRX builds with a, you know, a 2.5 liter bottom end and a two liter top end. And uh, they're great. They make a ton of power really down low in the rev range there there's tons of things you can do with the Subaru because you know they've made all of their cars around the same platform and around the same motor essentially for so long so that takes us to um they tend to have a more uh i was going to say they have a ten tend to have more of a uh evolutionary rather than revolutionary mode of change as far as their engineering is concerned absolutely technically speaking the um Subaru 360 that we were talking about previously, they used some version of that engine until like the late 80s, I think, like Mm -hmm. starting in the early 60s. Yep. And during that time, it went from two stroke to a four stroke to a overhead cam to water cooled. They changed all these different aspects of the engine, whereas it was like still the same series of engine. I don't know if any parts would interchange between like a 63 and an 87, but... (laughs) right maybe the maybe the connecting rod i don't know (laughs) right and they did the same thing with the ej as well i mean the ej started as a 1.5 liter naturally aspirated engine with a carburetor and then you know it ended as a 2.5 liter turbocharged 320 horsepower high performance motor you know but it's still an ej and it's still roughly the same platform all the way through the entire time and even with the uh, the advent of the 
FA and FB platforms, you know, the bell housing is still the same. So it's been the same for a very long time. You could swap any transmission onto basically any engine for the last shit. I don't know, maybe 40 years for a Subaru. I mean, definitely <laughs> it's since it, 1990 yeah. at the very least, you know, because the bell housing has all been the same that entire time across yeah. their entire platform, automatic, manual, CVT, it doesn't matter. They made it the same exact pattern the entire time. Yeah. They even made a diesel engine, which is terrible. Yes, it is. It's not <laughs> at all in the U.S., not common in the U.S. Is it here at all? Do you I know? don't think it was ever sold in the U.S. Okay. It's very bad. Is it still a boxer configuration? It yes. Is. Huh. Okay. I don't know much about it other than it is bad and nobody likes it. <laughs> but yeah. they did sell some of them in Europe. Um, yeah, that's about all I know about the diesels. Oldsmobile made a diesel engine. Everyone's favorite thing to do with it is put different heads on it and run it as a gas engine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Maybe they could do that with the yeah. uh, Subaru EJ diesel. They're like, hey, this motor sucks, but uh, the block's pretty stout. <laughs> well, it would have to be if it was a diesel engine. So, uh, yeah, maybe they're... Yeah, right. I don't know what the difference is with the the Subaru diesel. I mean, it's still an EJ, right? It's still like an EJ I don't, architecture. I think it's technically not an EJ, but it's kind of like how with a six-cylinder that's very similar. What's the six-cylinder? The, the EG e, or the EZ? The EG is basically the same as an EJ, but two more cylinders. I think right. it's uh, kind of the same like that, you know? Yeah. And and even like, like the EZ motors that they were making were an evolution of the EJ motor and sort of like halfway to being the FA motor. So like they do these things where they're like, uh, we're going to kind of split the difference with this experimental motor and try something new. And then we're going to do the full production thing for another 30 years. That's going to be, you know, this way or whatever. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like uh, the FA was like the biggest change with that is that it's direct injection instead of right. Port injection, injection, which to me doesn't sound that awesome because you have to clean your uh, valves all the, all the time. Don't they have both uh, direct and port injection on those? Uh, not in the ones in the WRX. In the one that's in the BRZ that was developed with Toyota, it is both. It's a DIT motor, direct oh, okay. intake in, and direct and intake. Yeah, what, that I, makes I don't know what DIT sense. stands for. But uh, yeah, no, the ones in the WRX are just direct injection. So they have to like mm. wall that blast their valves every 60,000 miles, which doesn't sound yeah. fun to me. Or I wonder, I think if you, uh, if you had like a water methanol injection, that would probably take care of it. Oh yeah, that would definitely take care of it. And uh, probably take care of your rods because those FAs were bending rods at stock power. So <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're not talking about those. I, I don't know much okay. about the FAs, but I heard a lot of bad shit about them. So who yeah. knows, Subaru, you might've fucked up with that one. It might be awesome. I don't know. Apparently the FA 24 that's in the new WRX is fucking kick ass. And it makes like over 400 horsepower with nothing but a tune, which Ooh. makes me really bad that it's in such an ugly fucking car. I but, know. Right. <laughs> yeah. My, I, I was telling you, my neighbor has a new 22 WRX and. Oh, I saw it when I was bit. over there. Yeah, I'm a little jealous, but also those wheel arches are a little, Oof. I don't know. Woof. Yeah. I think, honestly, I saw one that was lifted. Someone posted a picture of a lifted okay. one. Looks pretty badass. I think uh, yeah. you make it a little little more off-roady kind of build. I don't think it works well as a street build, but kind of like a sedan cross track. Kind of cool. Yeah. Kind of cool. 
so yeah, let's talk about what it takes to make power on an EJ because um, that's a big thing. I think people um, isn't it just boost? <laughs> well, you that would it? think that won't get you very far. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to I'll try to go through this really quickly, but I'm gonna kind of go through the stages of EJ power really, really, really fast, as fast as I can, up to like uh, you know maybe five six hundred plus horsepower and what that's really going to take as far as the engine is concerned obviously depending on your chassis you might need to beef up other parts i.e the wrx transmission is really only good to about 350 wheel horsepower maybe 400 if you're pushing it and then it's going to pop axles are going to go eventually things like that but just the motor itself what does it take to make power as with all turbocharged engines you're probably going to start with an intake and or a downpipe both of these things have to be tuned for let me say it again if you put an intake alone or a downpipe alone or those two parts by themselves onto your ej motor you have to tune for them no an off-the-shelf tune is not good enough you need at least an e-tune i would recommend a dyno tune even though i did not dyno tune for those parts that is just power as far as supporting mods, I would say as soon as you do anything, you're going to need an arrow separator. You should probably look at getting the cylinder for coolant mod and oiling is definitely an issue sooner rather than later. Either get a different oil pickup or an entire oil pickup pan and baffling system altogether fairly early on, I would say at this point or maybe right after this point. So intake downpipe. Next, you're going to want a electronic boost control solenoid to adjust the boost electronically. Then you're going to want a wideband O2 sensor. Then you're probably going to want to go to a speed density setup or a hybrid speed density setup where you're putting an intake air temperature gauge and sensor into the car. Then, and only then, can you move on to things like a bigger turbo, which obviously is going to take fueling the fueling in these cars is pretty much at its peak right past stock horsepower so that means injectors fuel rails and a fuel pump at a minimum you're probably going to want to do fuel lines at this point already do you really need to do fuel lines i didn't i didn't think that was necessary i would do it just because they become a pinch point pretty quick okay maybe not necessary if you're not going any further but at that point why not? You can get them on Amazon, get dash eight feed and return, maybe dash six feed dash eight return. If you're going to go big power, eventually mm. maybe dash six, both. If you're really, so you're talking, you're talking building for eventual uh, upgrades in the future. Uh, yeah, but I would say fuel lines at this point, if you have everything that I've just talked about anyway, you're going to want fuel lines at this power level, which is going to put you around between 350 and 400, depending on your turbo already. Okay. I would say if you're looking at 400 horsepower, you're going to want to do fuel lines. We've talked about this a little bit in the past, but um, the company Cobb does sell some package deals where it's like, if you get this downpipe, this intake, and this tune, they're all going to work together. Uh-huh. And they're pretty conservative on you know timing and fuel so that you're not going to blow up your engine. Yep. Um, but they've been kind of cutting back on that a lot because of the whole EPA emissions. Uh, yeah. Thing. And that's a whole different, I mean, we can get into that if we want to, but that is a, yeah, that's a whole different 
conversation. Yeah. So if you're going to tune the engine, you can get the access port, which is what me and Zach both have Mm -hmm. uh, from Cobb. Like I said, that support is kind of going away. So if you're going to have just an independent tuner uh, tune it, you might as well. There's other like cables and interfaces that you can plug uh, the ECU into a laptop or whatever and tune it that way. That might be a better setup for you if you're wanting to make more than, I don't know, 250 horsepower or something. I think you'd probably be okay out to about 300, three, maybe 50 at this point right now as it stands. But that's um, assuming that you spend the almost $1,000 on Cobb's G-E-S-I catted downpipe. Gessie, Jesse, whatever you want to call it. Um, they're green speed compliant. Mm-hmm. Down yeah. Moving on. Bigger power from there. Fuel lines, fuel rails. Probably beyond that, want to go to like a dual fuel setup. Basically two intake pumps or get a surge tank. Water meth is something that I am aware of, but not super familiar with. Obviously, if you add that in, you're going to get a little more power than anything that I'm talking about right now, but I'm not super familiar with it. Um, at about 400... I, I can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you want to talk about water meth at all, go for it. So I've never done it myself, but I know a guy that used to work for a snow performance um, doing water meth injection. When I was doing uh, 20, 20 Fars of Lemons with the um, AMC Pacer, we had he, he put one of his systems on the Jeep straight six that we were running in that with a supercharger. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the basic idea is you want to cool the intake charge so you can get more dense air coming into the intake and yep. also to prevent detonation. And the way that you do that is spray a mixture of water and methanol into the intake. And the methanol is there mostly to um, keep it from freezing uh, basically right. as antifreeze. But it also is a much higher octane, and so is the water, of course, uh, than than gasoline, and it evaporates quicker. Um, so basically, you're putting all this water vapor in there to evaporate and soak up some of that heat, like a swamp cooler, uh, and raise the in, the okay. uh, o- effective octane level, and then that way you can have more timing and more boost without having extra fuel to to cool the charge. Because a lot of turbo cars, they'll just dump extra fuel to keep things cool. And that can be, you know, not very economical. It can, uh, screw up your, your cat. Uh, it can do all kinds of things. The, the methanol isn't just to, uh, prevent it from freezing. Methanol has like a super high weight and heat of enthalpy. So it yeah. has like an enormous cooling effect. Exactly. Yeah. But I've heard, I've heard of people just running straight distilled water because they're like, yeah, it, it works for what, for what I'm doing. Um, yeah. if you, if you're, it's, if it's not going to freeze where you live or whatever. Um, so, yeah, depending on where you live in the country and your access to it, honestly, from what I understand about water meth, I think an ethanol tune is probably the more simple way to do that. Basically, same thing. Like ethanol yeah. runs much cooler than gasoline and is like methanol and alcohol. So it can be a much higher octane and you can dump a lot more boost and timing into it. Obviously, like you were saying, the downside of that is that you have to run about 30% more fuel to get about the same outcome, but you can push a ton more boost. Yeah, that's something to do with like 
WK metric, whatever. Basically, there's less energy in alcohol than there is in gasoline. So you have right. to use a little bit more and you'll get right. a lot worse mileage. Exactly. So I think everything we've talked about up to this point is probably going to put us around 400 horsepower. Once you start to step past this is when you get into really serious modification. This is where I would recommend if you're looking to go big power, you're going to have to pull the motor apart. And if you're going to do that, you're going to want to go with a closed deck or a semi-closed deck setup just for peace of mind. You're going to go forged internals entirely. That's crank rods, pistons. You're going to want to get probably some head work done, maybe cams if you're looking for big, big power. But this is where you're really going to get into a full engine build is about 400 horsepower. If you're looking beyond yeah. that and all the fasteners too. Yeah. That's yeah. Full half inch head stud set with ARP fasteners, um, whatever their equivalent, uh, not the two thousands, even the, the stuff above that, which I can't think of the name of right now, but really a full, full engine build with forged internals and closed deck. Like we had talked about before and probably some, some head work cams, maybe some porting like a light pocket port, would be good at this point. Uh, if you're really looking to make the thousand plus, you're probably going to go with like a big head port job from here on out. I think that's about it for power stuff. I, at this point you would definitely go full exhaust system. The stock exhaust is actually not too bad out to about 400 horsepower beyond that. Yeah. You're going to want to go headers up pipe. Obviously downpipe is going to be one of the first things you do. And the uh, intake manifold is, as far as the SCI version goes, pretty good, around 500 horsepower. Supers do have a weird thing called a tumbler generator valve in them, which goes between the intake and the head that you'd want to delete at some point in there, probably around the 400 mark as well. Yeah, um, that's just for emissions, basically. Yeah, and then, yeah, around 500, maybe around six, you'd want to go with a, uh, a different intake manifold. And then uh, obviously for every, maybe not obviously, but in Subarus for every 100 horsepower you go up, you'd want to go one step colder spark plug. That's just a general rule of thumb for Subarus. So that's about hmm. the most trimmed down version of how to make power on an EJ that I can give you. So now let's talk about why high power is not ideal on Subarus and why that's probably not what you'd want to do if you want to go fast in a Subaru. Uh, unless you got anything to add to that, Brian, before we move on. No, I mean, I, I think this is where you're going to talk about uh, where Donut Media went wrong with their build. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's definitely where I'm heading with this part. Yeah, Donut Media and generally making power on Subarus right out the gate is something that I definitely think that we should talk about because this platform is not well suited towards dumping parts on and making power. A lot of platforms are. You can just put some parts on them, make a little more power, and they go faster. But at about 400 horsepower, I think the Subaru is, unless you're building it to be a drag car, kind of the best that it can be, frankly. Until you want to go past everything else that the platform can do, and then add in more power, you're really better suited focusing your efforts in other places because like i said at about 400 horsepower you're gonna want to do a full full engine build 
i.e. crank pistons, rods, probably closed decking, and all of that other stuff I went through. Where a Subaru will really, really shine is suspension tuning. They are really, really good at putting the power that you give them down to the ground. Like I said, 400 horsepower is about all you can get until you are really dumping a ton of time and money into chasing more power. So if you want to do that, that's cool. I definitely want to do that eventually on my car. That's kind of where I'm looking long-term for my build is, you know, maybe the 600, 650 range. But before that, putting that power down to the ground can be really, really, really rewarding in a Subaru. No matter whether you're doing tarmac or dirt racing, these are really well set up for just a general race car application. And I think that's kind of bleeding into my next point, which is the inherent benefits of the WRX chassis. These cars were originally built as rally spec homologation cars, and they have actually kept that spirit into the new ones. I know they look bloated and big compared to what they used to be, but they have one of the stiffest chassis from the factory on the market. If you add in a good coilover that is specced to what you want, adjust your sway bars, your dampening, do all of the suspension tuning, you can rip around a track faster than just about anything on the road if you're a good enough driver. And more power isn't really going to help you that much unless you're on a really, 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 really big, really wide track with a ton of big straights. Where these cars shine is absolutely flat out in corners and not breaking traction, which they absolutely can do if you build them that way. So, what do I think Donut Media should have done to actually showcase this platform in a high versus low kind of setup? They should have used all of their budget basically on preventative maintenance modifications, i.e. air oil separators, cylinder four coolant mod, general oiling fixes and cooling fixes, maybe a front mount intercooler, which I forgot to mention in the power portion you definitely want a front mount intercooler at some point but just keeping the charge cold which i think is one area where like an intake can be really helpful and then maybe helping the breathing of the motor a little bit with like a downpipe maybe an up pipe something like that where you know you can really open up the motor to what it can be in its stock form uh you know get rid of some of the restrictions that come with you know a factory motor that's trying to meet emission standards and things like that and then really, really putting the budget into suspension modifications because their high version coilovers is what I would consider a bottom of the barrel suspension choice. Teens on a Subaru are, in my opinion, kind of garbage. Even their highest version. If they would have done some KW Club Sports or... I mean, shit, even BC Racing's high-end stuff. There's a million options out there for what they could have done that would have really, really showcased what I think would have been a good, high-budget WRX build. But instead, they did what they do on all cars, which I understand is very basic, and that's throw parts at them and try to make power. But again, like I said, that is not where the WRX shines whatsoever. And that's, uh, that's kind of what I have to say about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, um, 
Yeah, and I think I forget if I said this when we were recording or not, but um, we were talking about that those builds a little bit, and I I suspect it's just what they could get sponsorships for, or what they could get in time for yeah. the build or whatever. But yeah, like I I remember seeing those builds and thinking, what what are you doing? Like I don't know, they didn't they didn't properly break in the motors, uh, and then. Yeah, that's not even getting into all of those issues. The, the way that they treated those motors was, I mean, just fucking absurd. Yeah. I think they just went about the entire thing in the exact wrong way. Yeah, which is weird because, I mean, their Miata build was pretty good, I thought. Like, I thought they did yeah. a decent job of explaining that. But Yeah, they the did good. The part wonders if they did some of the, like, catastrophic shit, some, like, semi on purpose just because... You know, everyone likes it when things blow up. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, honestly, I think I think you're actually dead on on that. It's like it's such a meme to say that like, oh, WRXs blow up, and um, you know, I don't think you're wrong. I think that they kind of were fast and loose with it, whether intentionally or not. They either caused or allowed those cars to blow up like that because it generates views and it's a popular kind of sentiment to be like, ha ha ha, WRXs are unreliable. Subarus are unreliable. They blow up. Somewhere at least a few people watch those videos and their takeaway was, well, shit, I, I better do some supporting mods or I'm going to need to buy an engine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I hope that's what they took away from it and not, fuck Subarus, I'm going to get rid of this Subaru and never build a Subaru before because, like, I'd like to make the joke that, like, yeah, cool, more cheap Subarus for me. But, like, I don't know. I really like Subarus, and I think that more sh- people should give them a chance, at least. Well, I, I'm on the fence. I don't know. Like, I have been more thinking lately, like, eh, you know, maybe I should buy something modern and, and reliable. And obviously, I'm not going <laughs> to do that. Uh, <laughs> but I do, like, play the game in my head of what would I buy if I were to try and go with something more modern. And, you know, you have both talked me into and out of Subarus, like, at various times during oh, the tenure of Oh, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, yeah, unless, uh, Brian, did you have anything more to say on the donut media thing and, uh, and that whole thing? No, I mean, I just, I I didn't want to stay on that too much. Honestly, I kind of wanted to address that and then, and then move on and not let this whole show just to be about their shit. Yeah. I think like what you said, they kind of reinforce the stereotypes of some teenager buys a WRX and immediately puts a bigger turbo on it and blows it up you know, cause they didn't do any other mods or tunes or anything like that. I, I will say, I think the EJ motor is one of the last Japanese tuner car engines that was produced. Yeah. If you think of the two, uh, the 13 B gone. Yeah. Like a two J four G 63 gone. Exactly. Yeah. And like, all those engines are like pretty easy to tune up to make good power. If you put, you know, some mods on them, a tune, you know, they're all like pretty simple as far as like sensors and ECUs and stuff like the, the Subaru ECU for the EJ is a really nice ECU compared to like the one on my Mazda Miata. It can actually yeah. do a whole lot. Yeah, you don't need to go standalone. Everything that I mentioned is on a stock ECU. You don't need to go standalone to make a thousand horsepower, frankly, you can do that on a stock ECU and a tune. Right. I mean, you have to obviously do a bunch of other shit, but no, that's not something that I've really considered. Yeah. This, the stock Subaru ECU is very capable. But at the same time, like all these modern cars are all CAN bus. They're all Uh like very proprietary and locked down. 
and they're all like very complicated, like what we were saying with, uh, you know, direct injection and, uh, you know, yeah. all those kind of things. It is kind of in that middle time period of the late 90s, early 2000s, where you had these relatively simple motors that you could, with a few mods, make a lot more power than stock. Um mm-hmm. Because the the manufacturer left room on the table for that. Yeah. But they're also pretty simple to work on and easy to tune with a laptop and a cable to plug yeah. into the ECU rather than, you know, more modern stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that might be the double-edged sword of the Subaru and the EJ platform is that they're kind of simple, but they're also more, I don't want to say complex, but they need more care than maybe other tuner cars of the similar kind of generation or vibe wherein, you know, you can't just drop an intake and a downpipe on them and run it. You, like I said before, you have to tune for those parts. They will eat themselves alive very quickly. If you don't tune for an intake and or a downpipe, because what are those two things going to do? They're going to allow more boost and they're going to add more air. And, you know, as simple as the, ECU is, it can't account for those things. And so you'll overboost and you'll lean out if you put an intake and a downpipe on. And you'll blow up an engine with an intake and a downpipe pretty quickly if you don't tune it all for it. So, you know, it's a cheap platform. It's pretty easy to mod, but you need to respect it and you need to make sure that the parts that you're putting on make sense and are accounted for in your tune if they need to be tuned for. Cool. Yeah, so uh, let's talk about what symmetrical all-wheel drive is, because that's on all Subarus. Um, This is a pretty simple one. I think we can burn through pretty quickly. Uh, Symmetrical all-wheel drive basically means that the length between the drive unit and the hub is symmetrical on all four corners. So in the front, it is the transaxle, the transmission, essentially. And in the rear, it is the rear drive shaft. That means all four axles are the same length. There you go. It's symmetrical. What does that mean? It means that there's no weird binding (laughs) or really close to it. Yeah. Yeah. The fronts and rears might be slightly different, but you don't have a, uh, a transmission that's all the way off to one side where you have a stub axle that's like six inches and the other one's like 18 inches long. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that, and that's kind of what I was talking about with a transverse mounted engine. Uh, Mm. if you have an all wheel drive system, like, on a Honda CRV or something where they took a front wheel drive car and made it all wheel drive, you're going to have what's called a torque steer. Yep. Especially if you have a lot of power where the, I'm not exactly sure the physics of it, but basically the unequal length of the drive shafts in the front will cause one wheel to have more traction than the other. And it kind of goes back and forth between them. If I'm understanding correctly. Well, like the engine can only make so much torque and that's a consistent number, right? So then Mm -hmm. the amount of torque loss that you have through an axle is going to be affected by how long that axle is, right? Like a longer drive shaft gets you more torque loss because that's torque has to travel a further distance. So if you have two axles that come out of a transmission, I don't think that's the reason. No, no, I mean, I think that's the way I always understood it was that like one axle being so much shorter gives it a shorter path of travel for that power. And then obviously the longer travel of the other one, the more 
mass that it has to rotate around. Oh yeah, that might have something to do with that it. longer. I guess that the length of travel isn't really what I should say. It's like the length of it, it's it's more mass because it's longer. Not necessarily that it's a longer length that it's traveling over that distance, but that it's rotating more mass because it's longer is is probably yeah. the more accurate way to say that. Yeah, and I think also the angle of the the drive shafts the half shafts uh-huh. matters. Um, yeah, for sure. For so sure. like if you have a steeper angle on one side than the other, it's going to throw things off. I want to say that uh, Engineering Explained uh, YouTube channel has an explanation of torque steer. So if I can find an easy explanation, I'll put it in the show notes and we can get the physics of that. Well, he has um, an explanation for everything. Because yeah. <laughs> he's gone over just about everything at this point. I, I know... You know, some other cars have a similar setup, like Audi, we mentioned, has a very similar all-wheel mm-hmm. drive setup to a Subaru. And then, like, the old um, uh, Toyota Tercel in the 80s had a very similar mm-hmm. setup that was uh, symmetrical all-wheel drive, or I think those were four-wheel drive, actually. And basically, yeah, so it, it means that you're putting down more or less the same power to left, right, front, rear, and yeah. um, you're not... with a with a front wheel drive car that's torque steering. I, I think I mentioned this like a year ago or so whenever I test drove my friend Rafi's HHRSS. So that's like <laughs> a 260 horsepower through the front wheels only. And Ooh. basically the, the steering wheel would fight you. It would try and uh, steer first left and then right as you're uh, accelerating. Basically like one wheel is getting traction and then the other wheel is getting traction and it's kind of, trying to steer you uh, left and right as you go. And then I think even like Saabs in the 80s and 90s, those were symmetrical, but because the turbo ones made so much power, they still had torque steer. Wow. Because they were front wheel drive only. That's that's my understanding. I haven't driven one of those, but just from hearing from people that have, they could have torque steer. Yeah. Yeah. And just to be like very clear about it, that is because the transmission sits in between the front two wheels. So you have axles coming out of the side of the transmission. That means some of the transmission is forward of the front axle, as well as the entire engine being forward of the front axle. And then obviously the right. tail shaft, drive shaft, rear differential are all to the rear of that, to the rear wheels. Just to clarify the way that's yeah. set up, how that's possible. And actually on the Saab, the engine is behind and above the transmission. Okay. Uh, yeah, I should put that in context. That is on a Subaru. I have no idea how a Saab works out. That's crazy. That's Saabs are weird, man. Or at least the oh, yeah. the original like 900 series. Yeah, they seemed quirky. I, I almost bought one, but uh, you know, I wouldn't want to maintain one of those. Fair. Fair. Yeah, so because they have a fairly symmetrical all-wheel drive system, they, in SCIs at least, can utilize what is called a DC-CD controller, which I don't know what it stands for, so I'm going to look up real quick. I know it's center differential. Do you know what it stands for? I know the last Driver-controlled center differential. Driver-controlled, yeah. So, yeah, because they have a symmetrical all-wheel drive system, at least in the STIs, they can utilize what is called a DCCD or a driver-controlled center differential, which means that you can adjust how much torque is being sent to the front or rear wheels at any given time through basically what is just an electromagnet. And you can adjust how much 
power is being sent to that electromagnet, which allows the center differential to lock up to a certain extent based on how much power it has. So the more that it locks up, the more power it can send to the front wheels. And then the more you open up that center diff, the more power it can send to the rear wheels, which is a cool little thing that Subaru has that, um, you know, is becoming a little more common, I think, in modern all-wheel drive systems, maybe more electronically controlled situationally, but they've always had like a manual control for that so that you can kind of determine how you want your car to respond, which I just think is a neat thing. And I wanted to talk about a little bit. Yeah. But I think it's cool. The new GR Corolla has a version of that where you can actually send more torque to the rear. I think the the Subaru system is limited to the most you can do is 50-50, I want to say. Uh, it's but 80, with the Toyota 20, one 70 30. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because if you install if you install an STI six speed into a WRX and you don't have a DC DC CD controller, it will basically behave like a rear wheel drive car. Your the front wheel driveness is almost uh, non okay, like non-existent. It's it's like you almost can't notice any power to the front wheels. So yeah. when that's fully open, it's it's. I want to say it's 80-20, actually, but it, I might be wrong. It might only be 70-30, but it's quite okay. a bit of rear-wheel drive. I'm embarrassed to the extent to which I do understand what you're talking about, but have no idea the actual handling, like the personal experience of driving that, because everything I have, I think, ever owned is rear-wheel drive. Bro, come out to Colorado. Yeah. I'll let you rip around in my WRX. <laughs> I, I'll have the STI swap done by the time you get out here. Tell me you're coming next weekend. I'll have it done by the time you're out here. <laughs> we'll, we'll get you in an all-wheel drive car and let you rip around. It'll be great. Challenge accepted. Hell yeah. Let's do it. I, I will say, even with not a lot of power and all-wheel drive, it's really fun to go rip donuts in the snow with a Subaru. Oh, because yeah. Oh, you yeah. can get you can get the rear end to step out, and then if you do it right, you can get the front wheels to grab and get traction and do four-wheel slides with it, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, you can also rotate around the front wheels where you're just stationary. I absolutely see how it could be incredibly fun. It's just not something I have experience yeah. with. See, this is, I, I joke about wanting a newer car because all of my shit's unreliable, but there's also the fact that, you know, there's modern technology in modern cars and they actually make power and handle better in, like you guys are talking about making horsepower numbers that I aspire to make, yeah. but out of an engine, a third as <laughs> big. Yeah. Like, it's not lost on me. Like, I'll talk shit about imports just because it's, you know, it's sort of a bit. But, like, no, I respect it. And I'm, you know, as I talk to you guys more and more, I become increasingly curious. Like, all right, well, what would it be like to have a car where I can adjust how much torque is going to the front or rear wheels? Yeah. So that's, I think, a great segue into my final point. Uh, unless you had anything to add on the DCCD controller, right? You know, as you talked about it, I realized I know less about it than I thought I did. Uh-huh. I think I know how like, like how it works on other all-wheel drive cars. The other, the only thing I have to add is I believe on automatic Subarus they have some version of this that's controlled by the yeah. um, the engine ECU or the the transmission ECU. But huh. if you want to, you can tap into. It's just a wire in the transmission coming out of the transmission. You can yeah. tap into that and put a little switch on your center console that locks the front and rear like it's a four-wheel drive 
setup. That is very cool. Yeah. I wonder if that's what the new X mode is in the more modern Subarus, because they have like a crawl mode in the new ones uh-huh. that you can turn on that they call X mode. And I wonder if that's essentially all it is. That's possible. Yeah. I, I just, I've seen a few people do off-road builds for Subarus and especially like with the older ones, mm-hmm. with the, what is it? Four EAT transmission, just put yeah. a little toggle switch in the interior somewhere and press that button and hey presto you got a locking center differential and you can go off-roading with it well that is very fucking cool and not something that i knew at all yeah fucking rad (laughs) cool it kind of makes me want to do like a gambler build with like an old forester or something oh that would be so fucking cool you should definitely (laughs) do that yeah so final point here as we wrap up is a subaru right for you I think that's a big question. I don't want to understate. I know I am the fucking resident Subaru ambassador here, evangelist for the holy love of Subaru, but I don't think they're right for everybody. And I think that one of the biggest things that I think that we should talk about on this podcast, especially is the cost. I think that if you want something to build as like a fun car, you need to understand that everything about them is expensive other than the purchase price. They're cheap to get into, but I can't in good conscience recommend doing anything cheaply on a Subaru because I, in my experience, have seen way too many blow up from cheap parts or just not doing things properly. I think, and this is purely personal preference. I know, Bryant, maybe you have a different experience with this. I think that you should be using the highest quality of oils on every single oil change. I think you should only use OEM filters. You should only use OEM parts for certain things that aren't being upgraded with, you know, very high quality aftermarket parts. I think that every single part that you put onto it should be tuned for. I think that I know you run some eBay special stuff on yours, but <laughs> frankly, I think that, uh, you know, you're playing with fire and I, hey, it's worked out for you. That's awesome. But I can't in good conscience recommend that you ever use anything but the highest quality parts on Subarus because they are fucking finicky. But that being said, they're fucking awesome. (laughs) The other approach is, you know, you were talking about how easy it is to take out the motor on a Subaru and swap in a new one. Just treat the motor like a wear item and, you know, replace it if it blows up. And Oh yeah. If you're comfortable with that, fuck yeah. Beat the piss out of it. And then you can find one for like, they're a dime a dozen for like your basic you know, 2.5 liter block or, you know, whatever. If you're just going back to OEM, they're really not that expensive. A couple grand maybe for like a long block. It's not that bad. And then you can just beat the piss out of them, blow it up and swap in a new one. But if you want them to live and you don't want to be part of the stereotype and the stigma that Subarus are unreliable and that they just blow up all the time, well, you can prevent that from happening. It just takes money. And like kind of a lot up front. I think they're fucking kick ass cars as they sit OEM. I don't think you need to do a damn thing to them to have a super, super fun, actually really reliable car. What you need to understand is that you need to check and change your oil very frequently and make sure that you're never, ever running it low on oil. But other than that, shit, man, you could run a Subaru for years and years and years and actually beat the piss out of it in an OEM form and it would take it. Yeah. That's what I've been doing. I think that, yeah, your build is, is a testament to that. So is it right for you? You need to take those things into consideration. 
And I'll say also, if you don't want a high performance car, if you just want a station wagon that has all wheel drive that can get you to the ski slopes or take your dog out to the dog park or whatever, just get an mm-hmm. Outback with a 2.5 single cam motor. Fucking yep. just drive it, you know, make sure the head gaskets are good. But like, yep. <laughs> just fucking drive it and maintain it and just treat it like a car because that's all that is, you know, like it's. Yeah. It's really like for that purpose, it is basically the only option. You can get a Volvo that's more expensive and more complicated. You can get, mm-hmm. I don't know, some some weird GM car that or you can get a, a BMW that's going to fucking blow up or have electrical problems. I when yeah. I bought my Subaru, I looked at a few different cars and I wanted a, a wagon. I wanted something with a little bit of power. I wanted all wheel drive for you know, or at least something that's good in the snow. And I looked at BMW 328X wagon. So the all-wheel drive Mm -hmm. six-cylinder one, they all have, you know, the window regulator will go out and it'll cost like $900 to fix or something like that. So that's why I didn't (laughs) didn't go with one of those. No, Um, I'm right there with you. I was in the same boat. I was looking at Volkswagens. I was looking at Mini Cooper Clubmans or Countrymans or whatever the all-wheel drive Mini Cooper is. I was looking at similar things in yeah, I landed on a WRX for that reason specifically. And with time, you know, I was lucky I had no money to mod it for a really long time because I spent that time learning about them. But, you know, if I had money to put into mods right away, I probably would have fucked mine up immediately. But I didn't. You know, I used my entire budget to buy the car. And then, you know, I spent all that time researching and learning about them. And now I feel confident after tearing it apart a whole bunch of times and learning the car i feel confident moving forward and adding in parts that i want and you know i understand the path to make more power reliably in the car but yeah for the price you you really can't find anything else that meets those requirements yep i think for a long time running subaru has made the cheapest all-wheel drive car you can buy in the u.s i think at one point Mm -hmm. suzuki made it was like an sx4 or something like that a little smaller hatchback that was all-wheel drive and maybe there was some other little something. But like, if you want a cheap all-wheel drive car, that's, you know, get a Subaru, you know? Yep. Yeah. And that was where I was when I bought my first one. I just needed something to get me around that was cheap and all-wheel drive. And that's why I got my Legacy Outback, which was a great car, uh, you know, that I eventually just sold just to get my WRX. And, you know, I was not even looking for a Subaru when I got the WRX. Like I said, I was just looking for something with a little more power that was also maybe a station wagon or a, or a hatchback, but you know, also all wheel drive. And I kind of wanted a stick shift because my Outback was a auto and I didn't really like that. And yeah, I was looking at Audis, which were double the cost and I already had one and I knew that fucking path <laughs> was going to lead me to oblivion. It, it really is an awesome car to, to scratch that itch. All wheel drive, a, a hatchback or a wagon, affordable, reliable, it's there. You just you just have to treat it. And, and one thing that I, I did want to mention, it's not a Toyota. Toyotas, I feel like, yeah. have this reputation of just being indestructible. Like you can absolutely harass that car and, and treat it like absolute shit and it will just go. This is not that car. You have to take care of it, but that's all, really all you have to do. If you don't fuck with it, all you got to do is take care of it. And it's a good car. If you can get, get the five speed, or the CVT, yeah. don't don't get the four speed. Yeah. You can help it. Get the get the later CVT. 
yeah. don't get the first couple years, the 2011 to 2013, I think, maybe even 14, get like a 15 plus at least CBT. Yeah. Because those first ones were real fucking shitty. Are, are the new ones okay? Because I, I don't really stay up to date on things and was just under the impression that they kind of sucked. Uh, like CBTs in general. Uh, they have their problems. They all kind of have their problems. If they ever need to be rebuilt, it's a nightmare. And some of the new ones kind of had some issues, but luckily I think they got taken care of with factory recalls, as far as I'm aware. But I could always be wrong. Yeah, the only CVT car I've ever driven, the only CVT car I've ever driven was a Maxima like 10 years ago. It's kind of interesting just like how you floor it and the engine goes up to a certain RPM range and then you just accelerate. There's no shifting or anything. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of spooky. And I think, you know, I know Nissan definitely had some trouble with their CVTs where they would fail at, at a certain number of miles or if you put too much torque through them. But I think in general, in the automotive world, they've kind of solved a lot of those problems. Oh, and actually that reminds me, this is not an EJ platform or or anything, but the Subaru Justy back in the day was one of the oh, first yeah. all wheel, one of the first CVT cars that you could get in the US. And those are pretty terrible. They were a uh, rubber belt CVT, like a snowmobile engine. Not the greatest design for a car, but uh, the, yeah. the newer ones are a lot more improved off of that. I think those were a three-cylinder engine too, so not even a boxer. Definitely not. <laughs> well, we've been yeah. talking for around two hours now about Subaru. Should we wrap up or do we have anything else? I think that we should definitely wrap up. I knew that this was going to be a long one, but it was even longer than I yeah. had expected. Well, uh, I guess we'll say goodnight. If you, if you listen this far, you, you get a gold star from us. Or seven stars of the Pleiades constellation. Because that's yes. what Subaru means in Japanese. That's oh. why there's stars. Aren't the Pleiades one of those like, like alien theory, like uh, conspiracy theories things? Like uh, I haven't heard that, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't know how I don't know that. I love Subarus and you know. alien shit, so I don't know <laughs> why I don't know. I, I, I might be I might be like uh, misremembering words. So it sounds right to me. I, I thought that there was a connection, but okay, well, it's just <laughs> yeah. it's real now. We've it's real. The Pleiadians are listening and they're happy that we're driving Subarus. They're mad at you, Brandon, but you know what? If you buy a Subaru, they they'll be pleased. I, I think I might just not have Subaru money. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. As always, everyone check out our social medias, as Connor said. Cars and Comrades pretty much yep. fucking everywhere. And uh, everybody, I hope you enjoyed our Subaru talk. Bye. All right, everybody, Bye. take care. Bye. Half a million Americans at any given time are sleeping out under bridges and in gutters. Is that not violence to force a human being to sleep in the fucking street while, while the rulers that dictate this entire system have four or five or six fucking houses? That's violence. If you ain't first, you're last. You know what I'm talking about? That phrase, Trey Park, not to use the other bridge, Ricky Bobby. There's a joke that circulated in Russia in 1992 in the, after the first year of the free market paradise. And it went like this. Question, what did capitalism accomplish in one year that communism could not do in 70 years? Answer, make communism look good. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit.
much of what has been said about communism in this country is simply not true. She assaulted my body. Yeah. And that's nothing but pure and simple old-fashioned communism. The U.S. government is the largest terrorist organization on planet Earth, and they have no right to wag their finger at anybody over anything having to do with ethics, morality, or human rights. America is a human rights violation in and of itself.